Welcome to episode 361 with my guests, uh, Mark and Sonia Rossiti. We're going to talk about PTSD, uh, not only in general, uh, but in the military, uh, where Mark served and, um, Sonia did as well. And she is uh, now a therapist. We're going to talk about supporting your partner with PTSD. And we're also going to talk about sexism in the military, uh, that she experienced, uh, when she was, when she was in there. A lot of stuff. It's a, it's a really, really good episode, so you, you picked a good one. Uh, what I'm saying is don't abandon me. Please, please stay. I'll be better. Uh, this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, and uh, my name? Well, my name is... Uh, I'm, not, I'm not caring for this at all. Uh, my name is Paul Gilmartin. Um, what is this show? Mental Illness Happy Hour? It's part interview slash conversation. Uh, the other part is me reading either emails from listeners or very often uh, listener confessions through the surveys that uh, people fill out on the on the website. Uh, I am not a therapist. I am not a mental health professional. This show is not meant to be a substitute for that. Uh, I'm barely functioning as a human being. Why would you look to me for advice? Now that I think of it, you have made a mistake. Turn right around and go back to where you came from. No, in all seriousness, though, this is uh, this show's not meant to be a, a substitute for uh, for mental counseling. Um, but uh, I am fucked up, and I think that uh, qualifies me to talk about it. I don't know what I'm saying. I shared last week that. Um, I was feeling better about the financial uh, stability of the podcast um, after talking to my therapist, uh, and we went through everything, and I realized, okay, I might have been overreacting, and then Patreon, where most of our monthly subscribers subscribe through, pulled some kind of bullshit where they slapped on a 5% fee, and a boat loaded people bailed. And so now monthly donations are making me panic. Apparently, a lot of people bailed on a lot of shows uh, that they were supporting through Patreon because Patreon has now changed their mind uh, and they've uh, removed those 5% fees. So if you're somebody that uh, bailed, please come back. Uh, from what I understand, Patreon is uh, it's going to be the same as it was before. And it's my favorite way for you to support the podcast um, because it's done on a monthly donation basis. And I can give you guys free stuff once in a while, bonus content, maybe raffle off a hotel room when there's a podcasting festival somewhere, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'll put the links to all the stuff that I, that I'm, that I talk about on the, on the show, but, um, there was something else I, I wanted to imagine. I don't remember what I got, I got put up Christmas lights. I'm a little shocked. I thought, you know, after, uh, my marriage was over and I moved out on my own, you know, my ex was always much, much more into Christmas than I was, um, Let's put it this way. Anybody that didn't hate Christmas was more into it uh, than I was. And um, I was kind of iffy about Christmas to begin with. But uh, in uh, 1992, when 
I don't know. I'm laughing, so I, I, my dad tried to kill himself uh, a couple of weeks before Christmas in 1992, and he was uh, committed to a mental hospital, and um, he had not shown up uh, for a business meeting. Uh, he was on the road in New York, and they opened his hotel room door. He was in the bathtub, and he was drunk, and he had uh, made an attempt uh, cutting his wrists open, so they put him in Bellevue. And uh, this kind of sums up uh, how I feel about Christmas. Um, The psychiatrist at Bellevue released my dad to us on the condition that he go immediately from Bellevue to the airport, take the plane to Chicago, where my family was living at the time. We pick him up at, at the airport and derive drive him directly to rehab. And so that's what we did on Christmas Eve of 1992. So Christmas is a very mixed bag for me. But my point being, I put up lights and, um, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying. I'm trying to give Christmas another chance. Um, so we'll see how it goes. But I love lights in general. I love colored lights. So Christmas, you got that going for you. Um, I might have TMJ. I'm not sure, but my jaw has been cracking. To be fair, a group of strangers have been punching me, uh, and that's what's causing the cracking. But no, uh, I was at the dentist, and my jaw cracked. And uh, and he said, you know, that might be TMJ. Da 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 da. And every once in a while, when I bite down on something. It feels like somebody stabbed me in the ear with a screwdriver. Uh, so I think I'm going to have to uh, get get that looked uh, get that looked at. I ha- I've been experiencing more anxiety in this last week than I normally do. Um, I find myself clenching for no reason. Um, and I don't know if it's things that I'm thinking about, if it's something that's happened to me in the past that, that is kind of trapped in there, but um, maybe the TMJ stuff is related to it. I don't know. Enough about me. I want to read some uh, some surveys. This one is uh, from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and this is, uh, this is filled out. Oh, uh, you know how I say that there's usually uh, a trend with the surveys? I guess there isn't a trend with this one. Um, it's like 95% uh, female that, that uh, filled out the surveys for, for this week's uh, podcast. I always feel, I don't know, um, mixed when that happens because I, f- I worry <laughs> that the male listeners think that I'm shorting them, but it's not. I picked whatever survey based on the quality or the content. I let the content dictate what surveys I read rather than, um, oh God, I'm hating myself. What, how many minutes are we in? 7.33? Sometimes it would be nice if wherever it was that you worked, there was just a canoe that you could just get in and, and just paddle away from your job, your life, whatever. Just an emergency canoe. This was filled out by uh, Christina. 
and it's uh, she describes in in uh, a snapshot of her life. Her issues are anxiety, uh, drug addiction, bulimia, love addiction, sex addiction, uh, being a sex crime victim, and PTSD. And a uh, snapshot from her life, she writes, small but telling. When I stole cash from my boyfriend so that I could pay for an elaborate present for his son so that none of them would leave me. That is, that could be an awfulsome moment, too. That is, oh, speaking of awfulsome, um, somebody emailed me and told me that John uh, Senna, the uh, wrestling uh, guy, actor, uh, he was on Jimmy Fallon and he used the word awfulsome and uh, kind of claimed it is his. He didn't necessarily say where he got it from, but uh, Jimmy Fallon was like, oh, that's a great new word you invented. And, uh, when I watched that, I would be lying if I didn't say that my stomach dropped and I felt abandoned. And then I realized, is it really going to change your life? So so what if, if somebody else claims credit for the word? It's not going to affect you at all, he said, clenching, being punched by strangers. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by disappointing daughter. And she writes, I grew up convinced I would be a scientist when I was older. All my interests uh, revolved around physics and astronomy. When I was 13, I told my mother, I want to work for NASA and study black holes. By the way, an amazing documentary um, uh, about Voyager on Netflix. So good. Uh, she replied with a simple, you're not smart enough to do that. As the attention-starved, already perfectionist daughter of a manipulative perfectionist mother, I said, yeah, you're right. And that was the end of my pursuit of astronomy. Now I'm a writer, work as a receptionist, and recently I'm studying to be a therapist, and my mother is disappointed that I'm not pursuing something that makes more money. Part of me feels that I may have missed out on a wonderful career path to studying the universe, but another part of me feels fantastic about disappointing her. You should listen to the episode with Dave Anthony, because uh, he, he talks about that with his, uh, with his dad. But uh, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, this is filled out by somebody who calls himself, I'm not projecting you are, and about her anxiety. Like my brain has 50 internet tabs open at the same time. Uh, about her codependency, no, please, you pick the restaurant so I'm not internally debating if our friendship is over because I picked the wrong restaurant. About being a sex crime victim, it's like being punched in the face and feeling guilty for having been hit. That is a good one. Snapshot from her life. I was standing in my brand new empty apartment all alone. I felt like the room was caving in on me and I couldn't breathe. Why? Because I had convinced my roommate to get this apartment with me and it was real small, smaller than I had expected. So obviously she would hate the apartment, hate me and our long standing friendship and resent me every time she walked through the door. Or at least that's what my mind was telling me. Oh man, that, that, Black and white thinking is so hard to recognize when it feels believable. Uh, this is filled out uh, by a person who calls themselves child of the, of the state. They are agender, and they write about their uh, depression. Am I depressed because my life sucks, or does depression suck the life out of me? Uh, boy, that is that is so... I don't think there's a person listening that it battles depression that hasn't thought some version of that thought a hundred thousand times. Uh, I might be exaggerating. I might be engaging in black and white thinking. 
about their anxiety, uh, social anxiety. Sometimes I need to go to social events just to remind me why I stay inside all day. And any suggestions to make the podcast better, they would like uh, an episode with somebody who went through the foster care system. And there is one with the amazing uh, Tiffany Haddish, who is... uh, She's in that movie right now. What uh, What is the name of it? Oh, I want to say Road Trip, but I think that uh, Girls Night Out. Is that right? Um, amazing. And she has a uh, Netflix special that is fucking funny, uh, as does uh, Christina Pazitsky. Her special uh, is so fucking funny. Uh, it's called uh, Mother Inferior. If you get a chance to see either of those two, uh, do it. Both both uh, former guests of the show. Um, this was filled out by a um, trans male who refers to himself as Ruminathan. <laughs> Ruminathan, I just got that. Um, and about his anxiety, he writes, anxiety is like keeping pressure on a wound, except for this wound is depression, and it has to be opened up and examined. That is so true. It's so rare that you find somebody that just has uh, depression or anxiety and doesn't have the other one. Uh, This is filled out by uh, Rachel and about her alcoholism and drug addiction. She writes, living every day thinking I need a drink to to numb the pain, then realizing I may actually go through with taking my life if I drink today. Uh, snapshot from her life. My life dream was to be a mother. Now I'm a mama. I'm a mama mom. I'm a mom of two beautiful children and want out. My son has major food allergies and his diet is both taxing on our budget and emotions. Since infancy, he has had skin problems, vomiting with certain foods and swelling. The disease we are dealing with now is causing so much inflammation in his throat that we had to cut even more foods out. It is agony, having to wonder what is causing his problems. I am exhausted. I can't imagine. I cannot imagine how taxing that must be. Um... Let me just say, as somebody watching from the outside, what you are doing for that child is one of the highest forms of love. Um, and not a lot of parents, and, and the fact that you are, that you want out and you're feeling, um, trapped, who wouldn't? I can't tell you how many surveys I have read where a parent expresses in the survey that they want out of their marriage, of being a parent, whatever it is. So don't beat yourself up for feeling that. Um, Any comments to make the podcast better? Uh, I love how most people talk about how they cope rather than, quote, overcome their illness. Thank you. Um, I'm glad that we do that, too, because, um, uh, you know, I guess the black and white thinking is kind of uh, now becoming the theme here, but... um, Having having unrealistic expectations about uh, what recovery looks like is a big part of recovery, and viewing it as managing it rather than you know, slaying it and being the victor is uh, is just you're not set, setting yourself up for uh, for disappointment. Um, this is uh, filled out by a I think it's. 
can't remember if this is a man or a woman uh, or a non-binary person, but they call themselves Mo, Larry, and Crazy. Fuck. Every time I think you guys have run out of names that make me laugh, you you deliver uh, about their anxiety. The fact that I don't know what I'm anxious about is making me anxious. That might be Hall of Fame, that one right there. Uh, about PTSD, it's easier to let people think I'm a space cadet than explain I didn't hear what they said because I was having a flashback. Um, about being a sex crime victim, the rapist is the cut and my non-supportive friends and family are lemon juice. The rapist caused the most serious damage, but the lack of support from people who claimed to love me caused the most pain. Very, very well put. Um, and then a snapshot uh, from from uh, their life. Uh, I didn't report my own rape for the same reason as my aunt. I wish she'd never told me. Uh, I, oh, I'm sorry. Out of nowhere, my dad decided to tell me that my aunt had been raped when she was a college student. She didn't report it and waited years to tell him because she was afraid that he'd kill her rapist and she didn't want him to go to prison. He sounded proud of himself when he told me this, like it was proof of what a badass he is. I didn't report my own rape for the same reason as my aunt. I wished he'd never told me about her. Making my own decision was painful enough at the time, but I'd made peace with it. That peace is gone. I don't think I'll ever get it back. I'd always thought that maybe someday I could talk to my family about what had happened to me. Uh, now I know that I'll have to keep lying to them forever. First of all, I want to say I'm so sorry that you don't have supportive people in your family, and that fucking sucks. Um, and I, I would like to, um, give you a, my perspective from the outside looking in, and that is that your family has not demonstrated enough emotional maturity to be worthy of your vulnerability, but there are others who are, and this, this is, um, I don't see this as them rejecting you. I see them as not being safe enough to be worthy of getting access to your soul. Yeah, that sounded a little highfalutin. But I mean it. I mean it. And thank you for sharing that. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by, actually all of these have been, uh, I think, uh, filled out by Dev, who is a uh, trans male. And uh, Dev writes about his bulimia, uh, better out than in, about uh, OCD. I'm afraid my dog is going to have a panic panic attack and die because I had to go to work. Uh, I do, Whenever I leave the house, not so much when Herbert was alive, but Ivy, who is still alive, the look on her face, like, always says, I trusted you. That's what it feels like. It's this look like like I had never left the house before and this was news that that I like I had just dropped a bombshell on her and had done, done nothing before except say I'm never leaving the house. Don't worry. <laughs> um and Dev uh describing his uh battle with Asperger's, uh, Asperger's plus retail work equals meltdown in the stock room. Uh, snapshot. 
from his life. Once my high school counselor was interrogating me about having eating disorders and making me eat in her office. When I left to use the bathroom in the faculty office, she yelled through the door and said, you're not trying to make yourself throw up in there, are you? I was. Thank you for that, Dev. Um, this is, this might be the lone, uh, survey filled out by a, um, cis male, uh, on the podcast today. Um, why am I qualifying it? Why am I questioning that I'm qualifying it? Why do I think you care that I'm questioning that I'm qualifying it? Ooh, ooh, this is, this is, welcome to ADD. Uh, Bert describing his depression like everyone else is playing life on a normal mode and I was born playing on hard. Nothing is fun. Nothing is worth it. That is a good one. That is a good one. Uh, about his anxiety, every car door that closes outside is the landlord, cops, or my parents coming to take everything away. Oh my God. Uh, about alcoholism and drug addiction. People say you can't be addicted to weed, but I call bullshit. I heard somebody share one time in a support group that hitting your bottom on weed is like getting kicked to death by a rabbit. And I laughed so hard because I know that feeling. I have bottomed out on weed and it is fucking, it is just like, it's so foggy. And you're so cut off from every feeling except confusion and fear and disappointment. I want to tell you about uh, one of our sponsors, BetterHelp.com. I love them. I uh, have been using them for over a year, and I'm a big fan of online therapy. In fact, this this last week, uh, I didn't do it over video. We did it over the phone because I was out uh, running errands. They took longer than expected, and so uh, I was in the car and talking to my therapist on the phone. And that's one of the things that I really like about betterhelp.com uh, is you can do it you know, however you and your counselor decide on it and as frequently as you want. You can do it uh, multiple times uh, a week. You can do it through email, uh, live text or chat or phone or video. You might even be able to do it through smoke signals. I'll have to look into that. Um, you might be able to do it with an airplane, skywriting, but you probably wouldn't want to do stuff that's too personal or identifiable. Uh, I'm already hating this bit that, <laughs> that I'm dragging this out with. Uh, but uh, the listeners that have tried it, uh, I have gotten nothing but great feedback from them. And um, yeah, what, what more do you need to know? Now you're starting to piss me off. Why are you questioning me? Uh, so go to uh, betterhelp.com slash mental. It's important that you put the slash mental because then they know you came from from this podcast. Uh, fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of uh, counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you got to be over 18 or 18 or over. 
Uh, want to also give some love to uh, another one of our sponsors, HelloFresh. Uh, HelloFresh is a it's a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers your favorite step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. Uh, with HelloFresh, all the ingredients are delivered right to your door in recyclable, insulated packaging, and it comes pre-measured in handy labeled meal kits so you know which ingredients go with which recipe. And HelloFresh offers a wide variety of chef-curated recipes that change weekly, uh, including uh, the classic plan, which comes with a wide variety of meat, fish, and seasonal produce, the veggie plan, uh, vegetarian recipes with plant-based proteins, and the family plan, quick and easy meals the whole family will love. Better yet, you can choose a delivery day that works best for your busy schedule and even pause your account for weeks at a time. So you won't be spending all night in the kitchen because the recipes only take around 30 minutes. Lots of one-pot recipes for seriously speedy cooking and minimal cleanup. Uh, Each week, there's a 20-minute meal on the classic menu for when you really don't have more time than that. And uh, I have used it, and I can tell you not all meal kit delivery services are created equal. Um, the, the thing that is most important in uh, a meal kit delivery service is quality, creativity of recipes, um, actually four things, uh, taste, and freshness of ingredients. And uh, HelloFresh delivers on all four. And, you know, self-care is a really important part in mental health, and it doesn't have to be inconvenient or difficult. It can even be delicious. So, uh, for 30 bucks off your first week of HelloFresh, visit HelloFresh.com and enter the promo code MENTAL30. Once again, uh, for 30 bucks off your first week of HelloFresh, visit HelloFresh.com and enter the promo code MENTAL30. Uh, and again, all of this stuff will be on our website. Okay. Before we get to the interview, I have one more survey that I just had to read. This one is, I love this one. It's an awfulsome moment. Um, oh, fuck, I forgot to write down who, who uh, filled this in. Oh, well, they know who they are. Uh, and, and it's a uh, she, and she writes, um, Last week on the train on my commute to college, I uh, was sitting across from a table of four elderly men. I was sending my partner, M., who for the purposes of this story, uh, you should know, identifies as non-binary slash queer. When I overheard a snippet of the conversation beside me, where did it all go wrong? I heard one of the men say amongst themselves. Despite a visceral sinking in my gut, my ears pricked up to hear the ensuing responses. The problem is all these homo parades, said another. It's encouraging people. It's all the mother's fault, said a third. Don't forget the mother. Just when I thought I'd heard it all, the fourth contributed. I don't so mind the thought of two girls licking at each other like a pair of cats, but I don't agree with the lads. My entire body, to the very core, was aflame. My hands were shaking. My legs were shaking. My hair was shaking. I didn't care. No, I wasn't going to bite my tongue. No way. I wasn't going to slink off like I usually would. Not this time. The train pulled into the platform and I stood up, my entire bodily rattling with anger and flooding with an energy I didn't think possible. I stood to the full stretch of my height, five foot nine, feeling like nine foot five, 
towering over the pensioners, fire and fury having found their target. I am so very, very glad that opinions like yours will die with your generation, which, by the looks of it, should be quite shortly. Oh, and fuck you. Of course, this is what I wanted to say. Instead, as I stood up, I had begun dissociating. Unable to handle the rush of emotion, as I stood, my footing went from under me, and I fell, jelly-legged, to the floor beside their feet. They immediately rushed out of their seats, surprisingly and annoyingly agile, a chorus of, Miss, are you okay? Get her a water. Are you all right? Don't tell me you're a diabetic. They're the worst. Instead of speaking my mind, I hear myself thanking each of them as they hurry to assist me, still lying sloth-like on the train floor, waiting for the sensation to return to my limbs. I figured from this angle, fuck you, wouldn't have the same punch. But hey, at least I'm not diabetic. They are, after all, the worst. I'm so scared of being alive and so scared of dying. I was so, so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people, and it hurt. I've just been, like, very interested in dicks. I don't know how to let loose and just be. All my alters have different handwriting, different... Extremely anxious. Affects. I am most turned on when I am in fear. My first thought was I'm about to die. Stomach-clutching despair. Ocean of sadness. I came out over the phone to them. I put myself on the Akinzaya in fourth grade. They told me I was wrong. The secrecy is what kills us. And I just sat there and cried on his shoulder. And it was the first time I ever felt safe, like a weight lifted off of me. In order to get rid of your anger, you have to learn how to cry. I started liking myself for the first time. I'm afraid that people are only nice to me because they're afraid I'll kill myself if they're not. Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) That is fantastic. (laughs) I am here with Mark and Sonia Rossiti, and they are a married couple. And uh, we're going to talk about PTSD. You were both in the armed services. Um, Mark, you were in the Army. Correct. And Sonia, you were in the Air Force in the Army as well? I was. So I was in the Hawaii Army National Guard, and then I went active duty and went uh, Air Force. And and you're now a therapist, too. Mm-hmm. I am. I, uh, I'm definitely interested to hear what what that is like. Um, but let's start off with uh, talking about Mark's um, PTSD and how you deal with it, Mark, and how you deal with it as his partner, uh, Sonia, and kind of what the arc of that uh, was like. Just to get to um, lay a little bit of groundwork, what what were your uh, childhoods like, uh, Mark? How about well, you know, I grew up in Europe. Um, we lived in, um, in Germany and France and Spain and, and uh, lived mostly very closely in military communities. Um, normal childhood. No, no, uh, no, um, no major issues. Uh, family divorced, of course, over the years and these kind of things. There were some, there were some family issues, of course, just like anybody else, but, um, nothing dramatic. Uh, nothing dramatic. No. Mm-mm. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, as I grew up, I, I, you know, like I said, I went into the military when I was, uh, in my twenties and, uh, and, uh, you know, I've been to combat, uh, five times or at least in deployed five times. Uh, and, um, uh, that's left an, an imprint. Was it the, the first Gulf War or second Gulf War? 
Well, I went to both. I okay. went to uh, Operation Desert Storm in uh, 1991. Uh, I was there with a field hospital. And in, uh, in uh, 2003-2004, I went to Iraq. Uh, I went to the Balkans, Kosovo, uh, and back to Iraq and Africa and other other places. And, and what was your uh, duty in the army? Well, um, I started off as a as a clerk typist. I don't know what the army was thinking of making me a typist. I think I raised my hand at the wrong time. <laughs> they must have thought that there was some potential in me being a clerk. I was probably the worst typist they've ever seen. And uh, I then have they to just say you don't look like a typist. You, I know. I you, got, he looks like a fullback. I, <laughs> Those are big, some big with, fingers with on big, keys. Big fat <laughs> fingers on the keys. That's right. And uh, so I was a quick typist. Um, you know, pressed like several keys at the same time. Um, and uh, well, you know, and then I went on to uh, to uh, become a physician assistant. They 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 saw the potential of me become a PA, and they sent me to school. And uh, so my role in the last uh, um, 15, 17 years was as a physician assistant. Um, like so, in the in the surgery room. Well, as, as a physician assistant in the military, we kind of have a multi-headed role. One is a primary care role initially. So we do a lot of the sick call. We take care of the, of the snivels and the cuts and bruises and that sort of thing in garrison, meaning in a not a deployed environment. And then when you're deployed, you become a traumatologist. And you also have the primary care. And so those are the kind of the roles that you kind of, uh, uh, and of course you're also the, the field sanitation officer. And what does that mean? Uh, it means that you're also the, the public health. So you're person. making sure they have cl- clean drinking water. They're clean not drinking water. too close to the cots. Correct. They wash their hands, you know, and, um, do you have to tell, uh, people to dig a little, believe, the latrine? Yeah, yes. Even though, believe it or not, there, you know, I had my medics posted right there at the line when they, when they come in for chow and, you know, you wash your hands. Oh yeah, I forgot. Yeah, go wash your hands. You, you know, uh, it's, I actually, uh, <laughs> I, we, we used to do that quite a bit and make sure that they wash their hands. And, you know, believe it or not, this is what prevent a lot of what we call DMBI, a disease non-battle injuries. We, these are, uh, dysentery and, you know, gastritis and things like that, that they would, uh, they develop secondary to having nasty hands i used to think that that was just something that moms did that w- that was annoying and it wasn't really that big of a deal and i was uh in italy once and uh i there was something was on the ground it was a piece of seafood that people kept stepping on and i couldn't stand to watch it anymore so i picked it up and threw it in the garbage and I, uh, I was working on a TV show at the time, and I, and I uh, was about to go wash my hands, and they said, okay, camera's up, we're ready to roll. And I thought, oh, okay, just after this take, I'll go do it. Cut to, we're eating dinner with our hands, and I remembered I forgot to wash my hands. And I thought, oh, it'll be okay. Cut to five hours later, and uh, I was down for three days. Couldn't even stand up. Both ends. Yeah, and that yeah. totally changed my, my idea <laughs> about uh, that being an exaggeration. Well, yeah, well, you imagine that in a combat environment where you're having to perform and you can't you can't get out of your cot. I can't Im- imagine. So. Sometimes when I'm playing a sport or something and I'm really winded and my adrenaline is pumping and I'm shaking, I think, I can't imagine what that would be like if your life was on the line and you and you can't catch your breath and you don't have enough water mm-hmm. and you're scared for your life mm-hmm. I, I i cannot even wrap my 
head around it? You know, it's very surreal, actually. It's very, very surreal. Um, I remember one time we were on our way to, oh, this had to be in 2003, 2004. We're on our way uh, off of uh, MSR Tampa. Uh, MSR stands for Main Supply Route. It's the main road that got from Kuwait to Baghdad and to the outline areas. And, and that was a magnet for IEDs, right? It was, it was, it was IED Alley. It yeah. was, uh, early on, you know, they didn't have the IEDs. They weren't, they were good at it, but they weren't that great at it yet. You know, towards 2006, 2007, they've perfected this to a science. We're talking pressure plates. We're talking on trees, on vehicles, on animals, you name it. Um, but early and being on, detonated remotely, correct. somebody watching correct. from a hundred yards away on exactly. a cell phone. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, but back then it was it was pretty rudimentary. You know, they 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 had, uh, and uh, I remember thinking, driving up MSR Tampa, and you know, the first day they tell us, he says, okay, you know, you guys have to stick your weapons out of the windows, and you have to look like you're a hard target, which you know. Target that can fight back, right? Something that they wouldn't necessarily. Uh, it might be a might not might not be the best decision to attack these guys, and um, that nothing brings it home more than hearing a mortar land, you know, five hundred feet from you, you know, or watching a Humvee take two backflips, you know, towards you uh, because and, an IED is blown because of an IED or something like that you know and and and, I, and it's i remember it being very surreal we're in one situation where we're dismounted i was taking care of a young man who who's complaining of his back and you know he's been we've been riding now we've been driving for almost 2 days in, in the hot sun or maybe even 3 days by that point and um, we were attacked by small arms fire and we're moving the convoy out of the way and i remember that the 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 crackling in the distance, aside from seeing the muzzle flashes at a distance, the the lighting of the of, of the tip of the of the weapons firing and flashing, you know, it was very surreal. I mean, I could hear these things like popcorn in the distance, and and I'm looking over the side of my vehicle, and I kept on hearing these these sounds going right through the tarp. It was the bullets flying right over the tarp, right through our tarp. Because uh, it was a soft-covered? Correct. It was a soft-covered tarp. And, and you know, and finally, uh, you know, people realized that we were under attack, and we, the convoy started moving up again. And I remember how quickly people were just mobilized and just and, – and it was everything was like in slow motion. Uh, and, and all the things that you think, your aches and pains, your, your bumps and bruises, all these things take a big, big backseat to what's really happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, Oh, it's, yeah. When the lizard brain hits the stage. Correct. Everybody else is a backup singer. <laughs> you got it. Wow, well put. <laughs> so, well put. so in that moment, what do you? What what were you supposed to do? Lay down and avoid fire. Uh, find the object firing. Uh, the well, source of the fire. You know, being being a we were a hospital. We were a support unit. We're a, we're a hospital support unit. So we're in, a, uh, and uh, our mission really is to just get out of the, the area. We had the, we had the shooters there with us. We had the, the our convoy there. But pretty much anybody's a shooter at that point. Yeah. You know, so more than anything, I would imagine they need you alive if they correct. get hurt. Correct. And that was you know protect doctor or you know it's not really a, it's not really about that. But you know you're going out there, you're taking care of the folks who are hurt or injured. But um, it's it's amazing how quickly you move when you're when you, even when your back is seizing up on you, how quickly you're able to get back into your vehicle and, and move on because you're in them in danger. This is this is really for real. These guys are shooting at you and they don't care. And um, the 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 good thing about that is that we had a convoy escort, and these guys were 
phenomenal. They're really, really good. They're really good protectors. Uh, help us get to our final destination. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, it's when the adrenaline comes down and that you notice these things. I notice the very first thing I notice, and, and I hate to be crude, was as, as soon as we got done to our final, as soon as we got to our final destination, and I sat there, and we're done with the triage. We took care of all the wounded. We took care of our of our folks, and everybody's kind of okay. We didn't have to medevac anybody or anything like that. I felt that I must I must have stuck myself with a needle, an IV a needle somewhere, and by somewhere I mean the tip of my penis. And I'm not trying to be funny. It, it, that's what it oh, felt yeah. like. Yeah. What was happening to me is that the adrenaline was dropping and the kidney stone that I had developed over the last three days drinking warm water in 100 plus degree weather uh, on a convoy with full battle rattle on your Kevlar, your flak vest, uh, all, all your gear and that sort of thing was finally <laughs> emerging. And as this kidney stone, which was a crescent shape uh, 11 millimeters in, 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 in size going down my ureter, that referred pain that went from, from, from my ureter went all the way to the, the, the tip of my penis and caused intense sharp pain. I actually had to pull my pants down to see that I did not stick myself. It felt like there was a needle at the, at the end of it. So how far down your urethra was the, Kidney stone. It was working its way down. As a smooth muscle, as urethra is a smooth muscle, it goes into spasm to help move things along. And those spasms are unbelievably painful. Um, and, and 11 millimeters, that's gigantic. Yeah. It's, 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 for it was, urethra. Oh, it was, it was, it was scraping. And then it's crescent shaped. So it's shaped like a half moon. And it was coming down and it got stuck. So they, the very first thing we, I'm, I'm sitting there and they take me into the, to the, you know, after I get done taking care of everybody, I take, they take care of me. They run me in there and I'm, they have to pump me up with fluids and I get, I get like, I don't know, I think like six bags of fluids and I still couldn't urinate. I still cannot urinate. Because it was blocked. And I was just not being able to push it out. And finally, I was able to to pee a little bit. And then they said, hey, you know what? We probably should get a CT. We should probably get some kind of advanced imaging and see what, what's going on with you. I said, well, I can tell you. It's a kidney stone. I said, well, find out what's going on. So they sent me to Baghdad. And in Baghdad, they said, it's huge. We, you're gonna, we're going to have to send you to launch. We're going to have to go get it because we can't break it up. Where it's at right now we won't be able to break it up through lithotripsy, which is uh, one of the modalities. And so they sent me to Launch Tool and to where? Launch Tool, Germany. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, to to the major facility, hospital facility. This is in Germany. So I went there and compliments uh, Uncle Sam, and they 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 operated on me. And then uh, shortly after that, they they said, "Hey, how are you feeling?" I said, "I'm feeling pretty good. Good, because your bags are packed. Thank you." <laughs> so they sent me back to the states. No, no, they sent me right back to to oh, the field. Yeah, okay. Yeah, sent me right back. It was great. Uh, so I finished on my tour there with him. So did the uh, the stress of that thing that's kind of helped this thing come out, or was just just this just happened to happen right around the same time you were shot at? You know, I, I think I think um, I think it's 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 a mixed bag. Uh, you know, the combination of drinking really really warm water. Um, because we didn't have anything cold. We had, it was, it was, all our bottles of water were like, like almost hot. And, and what is the matter with drinking warm, warm water? You don't want to drink it. People don't want to drink it. So you, you drink less. 
even though you have to. Oh, okay. You, you're not. Oh, it's warm. Ugh. You know, yeah. and, uh, and and it's just it's just a deterrent that coupled with the, the heat and so the, the insensitive sweating that's happening because you're wearing your flak vest and and so on, and you have to keep it on, so you're you're, you're constantly sweating that uh, bad nutrition. I mean, there, I mean things I wasn't eating right. You know, there's a whole bunch of reasons why this could have happened. So the the full battle rattle weighs about an extra sixty pounds. That is, and and so I mean, you know, just having that on in the heat, like like literally, you can eat a ton and lose weight. Like when when I would go in the field, I would literally like lose like five or ten pounds. So the the, the battle <laughs> rattle was not adjusted for a person's size. Sure, yeah, but but, okay. but even my <clears throat> size, it was about forty five pounds versus his size is about sixty pounds. So about a third of your weight, <laughs> your. Yeah. So and you have to run in this stuff, and you have to. Sorry, it's no joke. And you know the thing is that they came up with you know a little bit better designs. They tried different things, and you know one of them. One of the things that was kind of interesting to me is that you know, early on in the war we had we had good coverage of our of our the the, the central the major vital organs. Okay, so we have the breastplate and the backplate covered your the core, which is. Yeah. You know the mortality of a of a core shot is 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 pretty up pretty much up there. People can survive a, a, an extremity uh, uh, injury, um, so that alone. But later on, the they started figuring out that our sides were not protected, so snipers would shoot in our sides, uh, collapsing both our lungs and and blowing out our hearts. So they saw that was a soft target. So they designed another set of uh, of. Um, of uh, armor for the side plates. So it just gets heavier and heavier. It just got heavier and heavier. And so it was, it, it was tough. Uh, you know, I, uh, it was a, it was a tough time. So give me some, some moments that, um, you think have contributed, uh, in addition to, to that one, or was that the worst one? Oh no, 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 no. I the boy it, shaking it, their heads vigorously. Yeah, no. I mean that that was because I know. don't ever want to minimize somebody's PTSD and say that's all. In fact, this would be a great time for you to to jump in, Sonia, and talk about the myths about PTSD. Well, I I think there there's many many myths about PTSD. Um, I think one of them is, um, is that you know within the military you have to be deployed to actually have PTSD, but PTSD can be from any type of trauma. Oftentimes in deployment we do see more traumatic events, but a car accident can cause PTSD. Um, Sexual trauma can cause PTSD. Matter of fact, a majority of our research actually comes from rape survivors. Within the military, we have a lot of um, military sexual trauma, meaning that um, there's some sexual assaults that happen within the military. And not just to women. Yep. Yep. Well, and, and when we talk about sexual assault, it's, it's really about power and control. And so that power and control can be towards a woman and or can be towards a man. And it, it's not sexual in nature. It, it's really about that dominance, that power and control that's needed for about it. anger and violence and control. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Um, also, oftentimes when we've had traumas earlier, um, let's say in childhood and or in adolescence or maybe even in our early 20s, it makes us more vulnerable if we have another traumatic event for us to then have PTSD or, or for the symptoms to be more elevated. So when, when we look at, let's say, 100 people who have survived the same traumatic event, let's say a building explodes and all 100 people witness the exact same thing. Everyone is going to um, have some symptoms of trauma from that. It, it's a horrific thing that happened in front of them. And let's say they actually saw some dead bodies. Let's say they, they witnessed some things. With that being said, out of those 100 people, a lot of people are going to have acute stress disorder, which is really kind of the early signs of PTSD. But only about 23 to 25%, so, so about a quarter of them, long-term-wise, within the next couple months, will continue to have symptoms. So, you know, not everybody who's seen, witnessed, or experienced a traumatic event is going to have the full symptoms to meet, you know, PTSD. And some people, in fact, will have delayed symptoms, meaning that years later it'll come about. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes within a military setting, that's what we see. You're so mission-oriented. And so, you know, in in my practice, I see a lot of military vets who are either retired and or who are a couple years out of of the service. And they feel comfortable with me because they they know I'm a military vet. So I I understand the the language. I, I understand kind of, you know, the different experiences that they've had. But a couple years down the road, you know, they're, they're telling me, hey, while I was military, you know, I, I had a couple symptoms, but overall I was doing okay. But now I'm collapsing. Why? I'm like, well, I, I understand because when you're in the mission, you're focused and you're really just focused on that. And now that you're able to unwind and now that you don't have that same presence of mind, now that, that you're not mission-oriented and you're civilian and, and you're able to just let go and, you know, relax to a larger degree, all these signs and symptoms are coming back up. It's, it, it's kind of like the longer-term version of when the adrenaline wears off, you can feel. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Very much. And, and is the... Um People who've experienced trauma previous to being in a traumatic event, is it because the um, amygdala is it? There's more wiring already laid down between kind of the cognitive part of your brain and the fight or flight part of your brain. Is that is is that why? So we we have a lot of research that that shows a lot of different evidence, um, but really the the people that are hardest hit are the ones who have a long-term history of trauma. Um, Our abuse victims, especially our chronic abuse victims, you have a much higher cortisol level. So um, especially like, let's say your childhood was filled with um, physical abuse. 
over that amount of time, your cortisol levels have just remained really high, right? Because you, you continue to go through fight or flight. It's the thing that helps you deal with your stress. You know, when you're more stressed out, the more cortisol you're, you're producing and so on. Um, but it's, and it's all a balance. Uh, the people who are mostly affected by PTSD by far uh, have been, of course, our infantry um, and uh, the medical personnel because we're the ones taking in the casualties. We're the ones who have to patch them together. We're the ones who have to watch them die. And we're the ones who know. We are the ones who know that these wounds are way too horrific that this patient is not going to make it. We know that. <sighs> Medics typically have the highest rate, and then we also see a lot with the security forces. Yeah. Why Why the security forces? Um, security forces, just because job-wise, um, they're, they're constantly on patrol. They're, they're, they're constantly seeing a lot going on. Okay, you're, you're talking about... Um, People that go out on foot patrols? Yeah. I see. As opposed to somebody being back inside the, what do you call it, inside the wire? Right. Right. Um, but even then, mortars. Rockets. Rain down. Snipers. And, absolutely. And I would imagine some people taking their own lives with their weapons. That's happened, too. That's happened, too. The What is the rate among uh, veterans, the suicide among combat veterans? So it's, it... It was 22. Um, another study has come out that really shows it to be around 20. But twenty percent of combat twenty a, a day. Oh, twenty a day. Mm-hmm. Which is unbelievable. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. Why is that never factored into a decision to go to war? Why? Why is it always money? Well, I can can answer that. (laughs) I think Thoreau said it best. When the rich wage war is the poor who die. It's it's expendable. And and even looking right now at our Congress, at our Senate, at our president, who has all served and whose children and whose wives, whose cousins, whose uncles, whose aunts have all served – it's a very, None. very, it's a very, 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 very small number, and and those generally that have served are the least re- ready to want to go to war. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a, essentially, you don't understand until you're one of them who are serving, or until it's your family, or somebody who you're close to who is serving. But, yeah, they they don't have family members who wear the uniform. And to me, that that's unbelievable. It is. It is, and it's become normalized. You know, at least in, in, Very in much Roman so. times, the senators would have to go out and fight for the war that they voted for. Uh, so what – let's start with you, Mark. Um, why, did, why did you join – the army you know it, it's it was a it was kind of a decision that i made because i was working in the hotel and restaurant business i was a you don't um, have to say anything more okay you, you can you get <laughs> it 
And the guy who mentored me was this guy who, he, he was like a, like a father and he was a great guy and I saw him retire and I saw that he didn't have a pot to piss in after 30, 40 years of working in this business, thankless job, working every weekend. And I said, that's not going to be me. So I said, you know, I, I, you know, I've, I've always wanted to, I always had a, a love for the military. I think I grew up around it. I think this is something to be a good match. You have fa- family members that were in it or just people you knew? Yes, people I knew, family members uh, and such. Um, but really and truly, I grew up around it. I grew up around bases, you know, the, you know, so you kind of understand the language a little bit. You kind of understand the, what they have to do. And I was, I was, I was perfectly okay with that. Um, and I, I still remember my drill sergeant, how he knew he would go around the room, you know, a bunch of us sitting around he'd go, you know, in this voice, <clears throat> you're a lifer, you're a lifer, you're not going to last two weeks, you, and so on. He points at me and he says, you're a lifer. And I said, no more than four. Because at the time, I just wanted to do <laughs> my four years, get my college degree, and you know, and maybe go to college and that sort of thing. And I guess he was right. So 24 years later, <laughs> turns out he was right. So what has made you stay? Um... Well, it got to the point where I was past the 10-year mark, and I really like – I like is a, is, is a cheap word. I love what I do. I love taking care of people. I love medicine. Um, I have a great passion for it, and I can't think of anything more honorable than to serve those who serve. You know, be there for them. Couldn't think of a better – anything anything greater than that, anything more selfless than that. And uh, – that's what kept me going, going, deploying with, with my guys and, and, you know, and making sure they were okay, you know. Uh, and that was, uh, that's what kept me in. 24 years and, and, uh, and Sonia joined the Air Force and I hung out my uniform and followed her around the world for a little bit. And Sonia, what, what led you to enlist? When was it? So we we have a, a completely different story. So so Mark started off enlisted and then um, went officer. I already had my doctorate. What, what is the difference between enlisted and officer? Officer means you went through West Point or something like that, or what? Well, there there are multiple ways of commissioning. Mm-hmm. One of them is West Point. One is through Officer Candidacy School. Uh, one can be a direct commission. Like uh, like Sonia was, she was a direct commissionee. But she had a doctorate degree, and they promoted right to captain. I see. So for for me, um, I I already had my doctorate. Um, I had just started, in psychology. Mm-hmm. Yep, I'm I'm a clinical psychologist. I was working for the Department of Education in Hawaii at that time, and I had just transferred over to Schofield Barracks, and I was going to work in there. Uh, child and adolescent department. Um, I became really interested in trauma. My um, my fellowship training is in maltreatment. So, you know, I, I was child trained and I was very interested in trauma from the perspective of children. But while working with the Army, I got really interested in trauma from the adult perspective. And of course, you know, what what would give me the best training going into the Army myself. So I joined the Hawaii Army National Guard, and so I did it part-time. So during the week, I worked at Schofield, and then on the weekend, I was the behavioral health officer. And I I, I did that in my 30s. Well, actually, I, uh, I was exactly 30. 
And so you joined, how, how long ago would this have been? So I joined in 2009. Okay. And then 2013, I went active duty Air Force. And then uh, 2016, I, I got out and I've been doing private practice now. And so have you been exposed to situations uh, to give you PTSD or put you at risk for PTSD? I've been really fortunate. Um, I was supposed to deploy a couple different times, but not once did, did my deployments go through. I've been really fortunate in that I've really been able to help a lot of others. I've been able to do really great therapy. I've been able to run some different departments. I've gotten really great training, but I myself haven't had any traumatic experiences. Um, and I, I, I've been very blessed. I've gotten really awesome training, and I, of course, got to meet my honey buns. And you guys met Life how long good. ago? We met in 2009. We met end of 2009. Okay, so Mark, let's go back to, unless there's something else that you wanted to, to add, uh, let's go back to your story, Mark. Uh, he's making fun of Sonia. Um, <laughs> give me some moments that have contributed uh, to your PTSD or you just want to share with the listeners? I can I can talk about two instances that I that are, that are near and dear to my heart. Um, the first one was in and it's amazing that I can still talk about I can talk about it so freely these days. Um, it happened in Christmas Day 2003. I was um, I was called we were woken up and we were told that we have incoming. Incoming means that we have incoming wounded, but we don't know if they're American. We don't know if they're Iraqi coalition forces. And this is like nine months into the second Gulf War, correct? This is, yes, this had to be in, in somewhere. Because in March of 2003 is when the... Correct. This had to be late 2003. Okay. You know, like, like I said, in December. So here we are, and the, the you know, and I remember vividly walking to our uh, our trauma bay and uh uh the christmas lights were lit up in the in the trauma bay and they brought in uh, the first patient he was a he was a he was a ambulatory meaning that he could pretty much walk himself they put him on one of the tables the third patient was a uh full thickness burn 80% of his body so what that translates to you is that 80% of his surface of his body is burnt all the way all the way um, what happens with this, time is of the essence. We have to make sure that we, we, we have an airway. We have to make sure that he has uh, fluids. And we've got to make sure that he's able to expand his lungs. Because what's going to start happening is everything's going to start closing in on him. And uh, the, the first sergeant, his first sergeant was there, and he had a phone. And he says, hey, do you want to call your wife? And... Uh, out of nowhere, I'm standing next to him, at the head of the litter with him, and I'm, you know, I'm making sure that he's breathing and that sort of thing. I have one of the other doctors helping me, and I was helping him rather. And um, his hand, the patient's hand, grabs mine, and he looks at me with this half-burnt face, and he says, "Tell my wife that I love her." And And that was deep. Um, I didn't know. 
I didn't know what to say. I, I think I said something like, well, you're going to be able to tell yourself, you know? And I got the phone from the first sergeant and I gave Did it. you believe that when you told him that? I knew. You knew he would be able to or you knew he would die? I knew that he would probably not make it to Baghdad. Yeah. You know, and then I found out how he got burned. He got burned because he was trying to save his buddies. They're burning inside a Humvee. There you have it. Drama unfolding right there in front of you. You see this, and the knowing is what I was trying to uh, try to talk to you before about it. This is is everything, you know. We kind of tell these things now. In medicine, nothing is is black or white. It's lots of shades of gray, and and plenty of them. And there's always hope. There's always hope. But sometimes beyond the hope, beyond everything, you're thinking, what are the odds? If he makes it to Baghdad, he he stands a 30% chance of survival. If he makes it to Launchstool, he stands a 60-70%. If he makes it to, Long, to, to Bamsi Burn Unit in San Antonio, he has a really good chance. You know, but we, we all knew that this was probably going to be the end of him. Um, that, that, was, that was in 2003, 2004. What do you remember th- feeling in your body that moment or thinking? Um, or- I remember I, w- I, was, I, was, I felt shame. I felt, I, felt, I felt bad because, you know, you know, as a provider, you want to be able to do the best you can. So you blame yourself. You know, you say, God, if I would known more, maybe if I studied harder, maybe if I've... Maybe if I'd done this, maybe if I took a course in that, maybe maybe I could have been better at this. Maybe if I, you know, these are the things that run through your head. Um, the one thing that I remember is the the look of reproach. I and I don't know how real this is, or is this kind of perceived or otherwise. But I remember his buddy standing outside, and and they're just looking at me like, yeah, now what, you know, kind of thing, you know, uh, you know. So he's not going to make it, huh? Kind of thing, you know. Perceive it or otherwise. I, the best I can tell you is that that's how it felt to me. Uh, I remember, I remember tossing my room that night. I remember just, just, just. I had like this tiny little room, no bigger than this room, you know. And uh, and I remember, you know, I just, I was so angry. I was so angry with with everything. Uh, and uh, that was the that was the first time I really knew that there was something that switched inside. There was there was definitely an imprint. The other time was later on in uh, 2007. Let's, let's, let's hold that thought for one second because I have a couple of questions I want to ask okay, you uh, sure. about that. Um, the, the, the feeling shame, I think most of the people listening probably thought the same thought I did when you said that was, what? How? how? And, and how could you possibly think that that guy would be thinking bad thoughts about you his 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 buddy and is is this one of the forms that ptsd absolutely. is this kind of the the beachhead of ptsd Survivor's guilt. absolutely why do you why evolutionarily why do you think we do that to convince ourselves that we do have some control because you think it's under your control because otherwise it's even scarier to know that's out of your control, right? So that that feeling of helplessness has got to be the worst feeling in the world. So in order to have the opposite of that, it, if you're in control of it, then 
what the hell did you do wrong? Right. So it's like the scariest thought in the world. It's pure chaos, and I have no control. And number two, I'm a piece of shit. So. Right. Right. Correct. But, you know, following that up, you know, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I have woken up with Mark sobbing and with Mark crying in a nightmare and me waking him up and him telling me the eyes. And, and I know exactly what it is because he has the same reoccurring nightmare where those eyes are staring at him and he's at fault. He's to blame. And of course, you know, my, my thought is the exact same thing. He saves countless people. He saved so many. And probably brought comfort to some that couldn't be oh, saved. Absolutely. But those eyes haunt him. And to this day, those eyes haunt him. I can tell you those nightmares continue, definitely not as often as beforehand. But that is definitely at when I was his girlfriend up until now being his wife. I, I know those eyes only because it's a look of deception. It's a look, not a deception, it's a disappointment. It's a look of disappointment, like, yeah, you know. Whose who's, who's eyes? Well, like I said before, I think it, it was more either perceived further than reality. Is this how I perceived that I was being looked at by his friends when I walked away from the table and knowing that we're going to, you know, we did everything we can at this point. We're just going to transport him to, to Baghdad. Um, and when I, when I got to where his first sergeant and his couple of his buddies were, you know, and, and I, and I just kind of glanced up and I saw that look and like I said, I perceived or otherwise, it's how it made me feel and, or how it, it affected me and it has affected me. I mean, I wish there was something, you know, more gallant. I, I mean, I wish I had something better to say, but it's, it's the look of reproach that just has a way of, of tearing, tearing through me. And, and that sounds to me like another form that PTSD takes is that this, this can't be official PTSD because mine isn't dramatic enough. Mine isn't. Mine is a lame version of trauma. And I've yet to meet a person, uh, or I should say very few people, who feel that their trauma is completely valid. Right. Well, that's, that, and you know, there's a lot of myth out there. So, well, you know, you're a medic. What, how much action did you see? You know, that's, that was kind of the, you have a front row seat for the worst shit. Right. Well, but people don't know that. They don't understand that. They, they say, Oh, you're a medic. You're, you're, you know, you're white coats. I don't know. What do you guys do over there? You know, red cross thing on your arm. What is that? You know, they don't really understand. They don't, they don't get it. So that's why it's real important to bring awareness. Hospital orderlies probably have PTSD just from shit being wheeled past them. Oh, absolutely. It's just absolutely. So this the second, second one was even um, it's, it's really jacked up. Um, I was in a, I was in a, in, a, in a place called Hawija. Um I was there with uh, the. Can you, can you spell that for our poor transcriber? <laughs> yes, H O W J I A, Hawija. And is that in Iraq? No, it's in northern Iraq. Yes, it's a, it was. We, I was with a small outpost. I was with an infantry unit there. We were the Wolfhounds, 227 Wolfhounds. Um, got your shirt on right now. I got my shirt on. Yeah, yeah. you got it. Um, 
He's got his tattoo too. He got the, the tattoo. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, uh, so, what happened was um, there was a uh, three guys, um, three brothers that ran a checkpoint um, in their vehicle underneath the turnips and everything. There they had they had weapons, and that's why the older brother was trying to run through the 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 checkpoint and. Oh, you 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 mean ran drove through a Dro- checkpoint? I thought you meant they were in charge of the checkpoint. Correct. No, no, not run, <laughs> run, run, run past it or to get around the the, okay. the the checkpoint. And um, so we opened up with our with our our weapons, and the fifty cal uh, took out their youngest brother. He was maybe eight years old, and you know. The saddest thing was that I don't think anybody ever mourned the loss of that kid. I, I never saw any remorse in his brother's eyes. I never saw any regret. The one brother who wasn't in trouble, who was the middle child, was asking, where do I get the money for the loss of my, my brother? Because there was a standing, official or unofficially, there was a standing policy at the time that if there was a casualty that was born from us, that was innocent bystander, we had money available to pay them some uh, compensatory monies. And that's what he was looking for. And, uh, and he said it was God's will. It was God's will that he... And, and, it, and it infuriated me to know that this poor kid, this, this little kid all day long, he was probably excited to go hang out with his big older brothers and didn't think he was going to get uh, uh, his head blown off. And, uh, and I couldn't think there was anybody else in this world that would mourn for this kid or anybody who was affected by this and uh, when I put him inside the body bag it was an adult sized bag, body bag and uh, we zipped it up we took him to our morgue and there he laid until the family would claim the body and it took a couple days before they came by. And I thought, wow. Little kid. I had a kid about that age at the time. You know? And, uh, you know, we we confiscated their vehicle. We, we, we took all the weapons or things that they were trying to hide. Um, the... The middle child was not wanted. The other one was. He went to jail. And um, that was that. And I kept on thinking, how could this possibly be God's will when you ran that checkpoint, when you did this, you know? Anyway, and that really affected me in the sense that, you know, when you see something like that, and it and it hits you, hits you pretty good when you're when when you have someone in your life that's about that age. That was the second second one. I think that was a pretty bad one for me. As, as you share this, what do you think or feel? What, what thoughts or feelings come up in you? When you, when well, you it's profound, like this. profound sadness in my heart, you know, and it's and it's it's a sad thing to talk about, 
And it brings a lot of emotion to me, and it's hard sometimes to talk about. Because you can't find the words, or it's too painful, or both? You know, maybe a little bit of both. Maybe it's that lump in the back of your throat that says, you know, this is this was a horrific thing, and, you know, this was a senseless, senseless death. And uh, I don't know. It's It's tough to talk about sometimes, you know. Most of the people that I that I treated, my my brothers out there, um, I signed a lot of their their death certificates, you know, and I, I and I remember thinking that this is just one too many body bags I had to zip up, and uh, that was a, that was a tough year. That deployment was was a really, really tough deployment. So, um, you know, that deployment from October to December, they lost a lot, a lot of folks. And so, you know, he has a tattoo that, that shows the 18 on there, but they lost 18. Do you, do you find... I'm I'm interested in the world view of people who've experienced stuff like this because it almost seems like it polarizes people um into like very few people are left in the middle like there's any nuance to how they feel about the greater world around them and conflict um it could be, just be my perception has your view of the world and how to deal with conflicts has that changed at all since you've been in the military oh i 100 percent. can you tell us how i i can tell you that i was in kosovo uh, in 1999 2000 and i can tell you that i saw the very best of humanity and the very worst in one day we came to a village called uh, Doña Bettina. It was in uh, in uh, in, uh, in the Kachanika region of Kosovo, and uh, Doña Bettina was a town where they had uh, executed all the military age men. The MOP police, that's Milosevic's uh, private uh, uh, force, um, urged the men to come down from the mountains, to re-surrender their weapons. And they, all they wanted was the weapons. And as soon as they surrounded the weapons, they executed them. And they had this big uh, 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 area that was their, their grave site. And, um, you know, I said, wow, I can't, I, can't, I can't even fathom this. This is unbelievable. And I remember one of the medics that was with us, he was said, said uh, wow, where are all the men? And it's like, well, here is your answer. Um, and were the, the, had the men been buried yet when you came upon them? Correct. Correct. They, they, they were, had been buried. Correct. This okay. were, this were, this were had been months, I see. but it, it was a big strip where they had laid them all down. Right. Um, then, then, um, then that very same day we went to a Serbian village where there was a nurse who had adopted a, uh, Muslim, a coastal Albanian child. He was, she was very good friends with her family. Uh, and this kid, was going to be raised Muslim, and the, and the Muslims yep. were the were the the ones in Kosovo had been executed by the Serbs. Correct. Correct. Yeah. 
And uh, so she, her being Serbian, taking care of this little kid and trying to raise him as Muslim as she possibly can in a Christian village where the village was half Christian, half Muslim, or half uh, K-Albanian and uh, Serbian, um, made, gave her a lot of problems. So, but she, she toughed it out, and she tried to take care of this little man. What, did you, did you, what do you remember thinking or, or feeling in that moment when you saw that? I remember thinking, wow, that is freaking awesome. Who knew? You know, just everything that you ever thought, you know, all the, all the you know, oh, wow, this is, you know, the one-sidedness of, of war. The, you know, all of a sudden that changes when you see something like that. You're going to go, <laughs> restored, restored belief in humanity sort of thing. Aren't moments like that amazing? They're just aha moments. If you're, if you're, if you're conscious, if you're, if you're aware of things, sometimes these things just go right past you. Right past you. Give me some more moments like that that you can think of, either of you. And take your take your time if you need to. I know to. an awesome moment. So he was, and and I'll, I'll I'll give you the couple hints, and then you go from it. Um, but you were presenting at uh, I forgot where, but you were showing slides of who oh, yeah, you had yeah, done yeah, surgery yeah. on, and then the father was there. Yeah, that was that was. I kept certain slides out of my slide deck for a reason because they're very graphic and they had, they had, they show the face of the, the people. But I was I was giving them a brief on Iraq, and I was giving it to the VFW in San Antonio. And it was kind of a nice little dinner thing. They invited me to, and, they, and I brought my 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 computer, my slideshow. And um, at the end of my presentation, this this guy comes up to me. He says, he says, hey, I saw that you have the big red one patch. And I go, yeah, I was with uh, with the uh, first infantry. He goes, you know, my son was the first infantry division too. And, you know, he got wounded over there. And I go, oh, wow, uh, well, I might have seen him. He goes, yeah, he got he got he got he got grazed in the face, and he got uh, he got his arm was was injured. And I said, went through my slide deck. I go, is this your son? He goes, oh, my God. It was his son. And he's teared up. He said, man, thank you for, sending, thank you for bringing my son back. Rare are those moments, my friend. Most of the time when you package them, meaning that you prepare them for the next level of care, you don't know what happens to them. You hope for the best, but you know. And in this case, it came around in a very, very weird way. Um, I, I wasn't even going to present. I, I wasn't even sure what I was going to do. I, don't, I wasn't going to give a speech. I don't know what I was going to do. And I decided to give him a, a slideshow presentation. And, uh, and just how life happens just the way it's supposed to sometimes. What a, what a an emotionally tough job and that you really mostly only see the quote-unquote failures correct the only time you really know the outcome is when it's bad wow wow so that weighs that weighs on you that carries your that makes your heart very heavy you know so let's talk about how PTSD, the arc of your PTSD, um, f- forming, is that the right? 
Correct. Coming on, how it expresses itself all the way to where it is today. And then, Sonia, if you could interject along the way as his partner and as a psychologist. Sure. Your recollections and thoughts. Well, the kind of PTSD I have is survivor's guilt. I I, I think of uh, the people I treated. I think about, you know, how how do they... How this guy that went in there to save his friends selflessly reaching inside a vehicle to pull his friend who was burning to death in there. How he selflessly went in there. How, why does this guy get to die and I get to live? I get to, I get to go back home. I get to go see my kids. I get to, 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 and I don't want to enjoy anything. I don't want to, because the more I enjoy, the more I see things, the more guilty I feel for, for, for this guy not making it home. You understand? So what you do is you start pushing all your friends and family away very slowly. You start isolating yourself. And, uh, and you engage in bad behavior or risky behavior. You, you do things that you normally wouldn't do that's so out of character for you. And the reason I can tell you this is that in these last 15 years of war in Iraq, I've never seen so many people in trouble. I refuse to believe that there's that many bad people. There's just people who went through a really bad time and didn't know how to cope. I, I, I offer a hypothesis that perhaps my guilt was unbalanced. I couldn't understand why I felt so guilty. So hence, you want to do something that would make that balance. So you do something bad or... It's almost like you're trying to end the argument in your head. Am I bad or am I good? Well, I'm going to do something bad, so at least... Uh... Well, there you go. That's why, that's why I feel this way is because this is who I am now. This is what I am. This is what I've done. I couldn't save that guy's life, so that makes me a bad person. And the very thing that could soothe you in a healthy way would be to get vulnerable and connect to another human being, which is the very thing you Can't feel do. unworthy of. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so a lot of anger, a lot of isolation comes out. So, you know, we we see a lot of relationships ending. We see a lot of violence increasing. We see a lot of drug and alcohol use. Um, And and of course, you know, the 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 more you drink, you know, alcohol is a depressant. And so, of course, when when you're already feeling anger and and most men it's difficult to just feel sadness it's easier or it's socially more acceptable to feel anger instead of sadness right it's it's very easy to get in touch with i think for most of us yes so so you know you already have sadness guilt depression anxiety and then you put in alcohol as well Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then just that impulsivity just shoots through the roof yeah. Are you comfortable sharing what your impulsivity looked like? Um, riding my motorcycle, fashion I probably should, not wearing my helmet. You know, um, some of it had to do with um, uh, you know, I, I got myself in trouble. I did get myself in trouble when I was in the military. Um, I got a, a letter of reprimand from the general, um, and uh, suffice to say that, you know, had this happened in any other court in the world, in this universe, it would have been a kind of like a, 
laughable thing. But in the military, they take it very seriously, and therefore I got uh, I got a letter of reprimand that stayed in my local file, meaning that it didn't go to Department of the Army where they everybody could see it. It was just stayed in, in the local. And when I got out of the military, it got destroyed. You jerked off on the flag? Pretty much. No. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. It depends which star it, it lands on. <laughs> it, it, it actually it was close. Um, I, um, I was still married. And uh, I met a I met a woman that uh, and I, I dated her and then when I ended it with her, uh, she turned me into my command. She said that I was I was an adulterer, and uh, hence now him him and wife were legally separated in different states and different had, bank accounts had filed for mm-hmm. divorce. But yep. in the military, until you're actually divorced, you are married. There there's no separation. There it oh. it doesn't matter. So. In, in the military, until that divorce decree is signed, you're married. There, it's different. There seems, there, there seems to be uh, <laughs> some priorities that need to be reshifted in the in the military. <laughs> the uh, the uh, not prioritizing a military sexual assault and then coming down on this uh, yeah. is that's a that's a that's a head scratcher. Yes. Can can you talk about? Um, not only as a psychologist, but as a woman who served, can you talk about military sexual assault? Although, to be fair, men are also um, uh, assaulted, and there are also uh, female perpetrators. Uh, so this isn't absolutely. Always, or am I wrong? No, you're you're okay. you're absolutely correct, um, and. You know, very, very seldom do we get um, males to come forward. It it, it takes tremendous courage um, for a male in the military to come forward um, because we we see it as a female issue, which it totally is not. You're absolutely correct in saying that there are quite a lot of men who are sexually victimized as well. Um, absolutely. You know, the, the military is such a um, unique place to work in that we have everyone from every single background, and it's extraordinary in that way. You meet men and women who have had experiences in 10 million different things, who speak all sorts of different languages, who have even come from lots and lots of different countries. It is truly um, amazing to serve. There's a lot, a lot of women in the military, and yet we remain a minority. And it is very, very difficult to be a woman in the military. Give, give, give us some snapshots to paint that picture for the person who has not experienced it or <laughs> doesn't know about it. And I'm including myself. I remember being in the field and never being as pissed off as having a commander tell me there are soldiers and then there are females. And I was like, what the heck are you talking about? And he's like, well, there are soldiers and then there are females. And so our females need to be the same as our soldiers. And I'm like, everybody is. We all wear the same uniform. 
We all bleed exactly the same way. We're all in the exact same field. Oh, no, those are the females. And he directly pointed out all the females in his unit and, uh, you know, directly spoke about what it is that they get to do versus what the males get to do. He was very clear on um, being a female was not being a soldier. I reported that to the general, and um, she found that to be perfectly acceptable. I, a female general found that to be perfectly acceptable. Sorry, I, I reported it to the female colonel who reported it to the male general. I see. Both of them found it to be perfectly acceptable. I... I was so furious. I don't think I came off of that anger for a full two days. <laughs> Matter of fact, I think I landed from the field after two weeks and I was still steaming. But no, the, these things are, are perfectly acceptable. Um, being female in the military, you work triple as hard. And um, excuse my language, but you have to be a bitch at work. You cannot be soft. You cannot be easygoing about things. You have to handle business in a um, very professional manner. There can be absolutely no weakness. That is exactly how people describe prison. Well, um, when you look at anybody who um, is in the military for a longer period of time and who does not have those priorities set, they get eaten. They get eaten alive. There, There's no surviving the military without that. As a female. Your dating life, anything you do, any softness you have, any weakness, um, gets pounced on, not only by the males, but also by the females. How, how so? Uh, any makeup you have, any hair that's out of line, any uniform dysfunction, the females are going to be the first that pointed out. Um, yeah, like in what way? What, like, give me an example of... Oh, I, I, I had chapstick on. And so in the Army, you're not supposed to have anything shiny. And so um, my chapstick had uh, a slight shimmer to it. Literally from a mile away, I had a specialist coming to me. I'm an officer. Specialists don't don't come to me telling me what I can wear and what I can't wear. It was chapstick. It's perfectly appropriate. It it, it is just it, it, it's amazing. Um, Do you remember the words that that they used, or what the gist of what they said was? Oh, the 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 gist was you know you're. Your your lips are are shiny, ma'am. Like, thank you so much. Get back to work. <laughs> I don't know why you're standing in front yeah. of me. You don't need to be here. <laughs> um, but it it it's amazing how how tough it is to be a female. Now now you take that and um, you take that in let's say, a field environment or in a deployed environment, and it becomes a whole lot trickier. How so? Well, you're one of a few, depending on where you're working. So oftentimes, there's only a couple females. 
um, in a deployed setting. They're called deployment hot. It It's a very, very challenging environment, and you have to maintain very, very strict boundaries. This is really difficult to do, especially when you're six months, a year, year and a half gone. But on on top of that, you have to pick and choose very wisely who you're friends with. And and does this happen uh, outside the wire as well when you, when you're deployed, or is it mostly inside? I so, just want to use that phrase as much as I can so people think I'm tough. So I've never been deployed, so, <laughs> Mark is so laughing I can't very tell hard. you um, from my own experience. I know from my own experience, I very much had to watch and check who I was friends with and what I said and what I did. Everything as a female officer was a whole lot more scrutinized than as a male officer. Um, when I did something, it was seen very, very different than when Mark did something. Um, and that's true for, for all branches. I mean, you know, one of the really good examples would be, um, a Swain, I went to a club for a friend of ours birthday and we were dancing and, uh, I guess that next drill, mm-hmm. uh, four or five or so, oh, man, we saw you at the club dancing. Instead of coming up to her and saying, hey, ma'am, how are you? Hey, we're here, too. Da, da, da. No, no. They were there taking pictures of her, mm-hmm. trying, to, trying to catch her doing something compromising or something like that. And literally, like, they're, they're showing the pictures of me dancing with my husband to, you know, all, all the other enlisted members instead of actually coming up to me. So, did you do something wrong? Oh God, no! I, I, I was at a I, dance club dancing, were, yeah. but I I had a dress on. And and were these uh, women that took these pictures and came up to you, or men, or these both? were men? Yeah. You, I, 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 I you, don't understand. You watch your behavior a whole lot more. You watch exactly what you say. You watch how you say things. So it, when when you look at military members and, and when you look at females in uniform, we're not smiling. We're showing you that we mean business. Here are my boundaries. That's, Don't that interpret is, this as weakness. Absolutely. You're not showing any of that because you will get you will get eaten. So you know, with that being said, absolutely um Sexual trauma-wise, yes, there there's a lot of things that happen on and off base. Um, lots of things that happen on deployment. Um, how how do you handle? Let's say you're out in the field and there's a, a small platoon of you, and you have to take care of basic hygiene, but you have to. Uh, you know, not wander. How well? How does how does that happen? Well, in the military, the early on, they always teach you always have a battle buddy. So your battle buddy is someone that is either assigned to you or someone your friend. That's your 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 pal, your battle buddy. And you and your battle buddy will go everywhere together. And if it means going to the latrine, she watches your weapon while you take care of your personal hygiene stuff, mm-hmm. and vice versa. That's kind of a, it's a buddy system kind of thing that goes on in the military. Um, that's one way. Uh, but uh. yeah, ab- absolutely. And you you figure out very quickly who you can trust and who who you cannot trust. And you figure out very quickly 
um, what is appropriate to talk about and what is not appropriate to talk about. And it, it's very, very difficult because, you know, oftentimes sexual harassment, sexual assault starts very slow, right? And so everybody slowly kind of picks at that boundary. And so, you know, like within the Air Force, um, our flyers and, you know, our our crews, you know, are, are predominantly male. So, you know, they they talk all sorts of tract, uh, trash talk and um, they'll they'll say lots of derogatory things against females. Do you participate in that? Do you ignore that? Um, where where do you put the boundary down? And so it becomes very, very difficult. So do you do you just laugh at it and you say it's okay because I'm going to be one of the boys, but you're not? Um, or do you not allow that and do you immediately put the boundary up, but then immediately you're known as that woman? Mm-hmm. That that is. Um, I've I've heard of that also. Uh, in many other industries that are male dominated because you want to be a part of you want to you, integrate right but you also don't want to be disrespected right and i would imagine in something that's as high pressure as that people need an irreverent sense of humor but some people probably don't understand or don't care the difference between irreverent humor that's acceptable right and needed for bonding and letting off steam and irreverent humor that is making one person feel ostracized. Absolutely. You know, there's, there's a difference between busting balls and humiliating. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know how to describe it, but I know it when I see it and I know it when I, when I feel it. Um, anything else on, on that subject? It's tough. Um, you know, I, as a therapist, I've um, I've had the the misfortune of really having several different patients, male and female, who have been uh, sexually assaulted and, and who have been raped, um, both in garrison and deployed. And it it ruins everything. It completely ruins your life. You have absolutely no trust whatsoever in your team, in your unit. Um, Which is the thing they pound into your head in basic training. Absolutely. Is you, if we are to survive, we have to be able to trust. Absolutely. Wow. Function as one. Absolutely. Mark, let's go go back to um, pick up where we left off uh, with you, how your PTSD began uh presenting uh itself you know we talked a bit about the acting out taking uh risks well the other way was i was um i was perfectly willing to hang myself um in about mm, i'd say somewhere between 2006 2007 right before i went to iraq um I uh, redeployed before I yes before I went back to Iraq, um, and at this, at this time it was it was a time that I was uh, um, not going anywhere, um, and I found out shortly after my first attempt um, that I was being deployed. Um, I'll get to that. So 
one of the ways, you know, I have isolated myself. Now, you know, it's time to, you know, come up with a plan. What am I going to do? How am I going to do this? And uh, what we're talking about here is suicide. Um, I found a tree. It was uh, the tattoo on your arm. Correct. Designates that. And uh, I found a tree on my way home that was um, bare. There was it was no life left in it. It was gray. It was it was by itself. And uh, there were trees around it, but it was they were they were they were fine. (laughs) And I I felt this would be the place where I was going to end it. It had great long beams. Had good places to, to, to hang myself from. Um, and um, and it was in a very very dark period of my time, my life, and uh, my plan was to do that. And um, I almost succeeded. I, I, I went there one night, uh, and uh, I walked all the way up to the tree, and was the wind was blowing. I could see the North Shore lights from from the distance from where I was. I was pretty much right across from the Dole Cannery. Um, Is that on Oahu? And that's in Oahu, right? And um, and I, I walked to the tree, and I and I and I sat at the base of the tree, and it had these big roots that came out. And it just kind of felt like what you're sitting in a in an armchair, you know. And I sat there, and I had in my pocket a um, a tie. So it was a it was a nylon tie. It was to tie down, had a ratchet, and I was going to make a loop in it, and I was going to hang myself. So, you know, that's what I did. I um, I tied the I tied the loop to the tree, and uh, I I just you know I didn't have the courage. I I sat there for a minute and. I tried, and I and I, I put my head through the loop. I took it down. I sat down again, and you know, sitting on that cold dirt was was kind of like the closest thing to home. You know, at this point, I didn't think much of myself. I, you know, I'd lost everything. I lost my 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 uh, the time my my wife. I, um, you know, I pushed everybody away. Uh, you know, I was I was. This, I was I was no longer me. I don't know who I was then. Uh, and I and I remember sitting between the roots, and I and I think I fell asleep, and um, and I remember waking up, and then I said, "I'm going to do this," and I, I tied it again, and I put it around my neck. I took a step right off the medium beam, and I hit the ground. Ass first, head hit the trunk of the tree, and it turned out that I was just dreaming. I had fallen asleep at the base of the tree, dreaming that I was committing suicide. I got up. It, it was drizzling. I, I got to my Jeep, and I said, well, maybe not tonight. Maybe not tonight. And days went by. There were there were several close attempts again, but I, I didn't have the courage to to do this. I did not have the courage to to actually hang myself, even though I felt I needed to do it. And um, 
I found out that I was being deployed. And all of a sudden I said, ha-ha. And I had no intention of coming back home. So I was going to off myself through passive means, opposed to active means. Let the war take you. Let, 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 let the war take me. And I, um, and I went to, to Iraq, and I, uh, so my intention was not to return. My intent was to go there and uh, come back in a body bag. And so what changed? You know, towards the end of my tour in Iraq, I saw that, you know, I volunteered for multiple missions. I volunteered for any time I could leave the wire, any time I could get off uh, our our FOB. Uh, and uh, Forward operating base? Mm-hmm. Oh, I should be in the military. <laughs> You've got all the terms. <laughs> you're, you're all over it. And... Uh, and uh, anytime I could. And I put myself in harm's way all the time. Life happens just the way it's supposed to, my friend. I came back. What now? What now? And I got a call maybe two or three months after I'd gotten back from Iraq. And it was from my branch manager. And he says, hey, we need somebody to go to Africa. And at this point, I, I knew there was a lot of stuff going on with me. I, I, I don't want to get help. I, I'm, I'm still kind of... But it seems like that whole time that I was in Africa, I just kind of put the cruise control button. And, then, and I agreed because I, I knew that there, there would be maybe some opportunities there. Um, because there's a lot of bad people in Africa in terms of Al-Shabaab and, and, and uh, Al-Qaeda. So you had been in Africa before and they wanted to send you back to Africa? Or did you mean you say when I had been in Iraq? From Iraq, I got back to Hawaii and um, a few short months after I got back, normally they'd give you a year to kind of, but in my case, they asked me if I could go and I volunteered to go to Africa for a year. And uh, I was on cruise control the whole time. And when I got back from Africa... um, I didn't know what to do. I was, you know, I, I stayed with my friend uh, Lance, stayed at his house for a little bit, and met her. Met Sonia. Met Sonia, and within a few short dates, she was like, yeah, we need to talk. <laughs> you are two kinds of jacked up. <laughs> <laughs> And she was right. I mean, you know, I, I didn't know what to do with myself. I mean, I was, you know, I I, I didn't even know how, you know, because I wasn't really looking at, at having a relationship. I was really kind of, you know, but when I met her, I was like, well, now what? You know, now I have to consider the future. You know, now I got now I got to shave my back, and <laughs> it's just it's all this weight to be lost. You know, it was terrible, right? And uh, so we started dating, and um, you know what happens. Is that you want to be you want to be healthy for the other person. You want to be good for the other person, you know. And uh, I I agreed to go get help. She she 
urged me because she knew what was going on with me. She saw my anxiety. She saw my, my, my restless nights. She saw me checking the doors 27 million times. Any rustle that was outside, I would get up, you know, with a flashlight. You know, it was all these, I never slept. Hence, she didn't sleep. Um, and, um, I started treatment. And, uh, it was at first, Oh my God, we did this for about a year and some change. And at first, every Wednesday night, I'd come home and I'd tell her, I'm not going back. I'm not, I'm doing something else. I'm not doing this. And every time I'd go back and then every time it was the same thing. And I dreaded Wednesday nights because I did not get any sleep. Was it individual or group or? It was individual. And, and was it um, uh, focus on PTSD or just talk therapy or? Is, is, yeah, it was mostly um, uh, EMDR, um, and uh, she knows the acronym. Prolonged exposure. Prolonged so, exposure. so we we got really lucky. So, um, so I I worked at that time at Schofield Barracks with Mark, and so I had gotten him in with one of the really good therapists because, of course, you know, one one of the benefits of working in the yeah. field is, you know. Yeah, I, I'm I'm going to get my honey in with someone who can really help him. Well, we had just got Edna Foe, who is like the number one um, specialist as as far as prolonged exposure. She had just what, come. what is prolonged exposure? So, with prolonged is that, exposure, is that like cumulative PTSD? Um, or is this a, a modality to help you? It's it it's a treatment modality. Okay. So with prolonged exposure, you're telling about the event or about multiple different events, but but you're breaking it down into events, and you're really telling all the different details, and you're you're really looking very particularly at the thoughts with it you're listening to that recording of the saying so that this way the more times you're able to really look at that traumatic event the less and less the emotional volatility continues to come up and so it, it it's a great treatment modality that works really, really well. And we had just gotten like the top specialist in the world to come and train us. So, you know, of course, I was part of the training. The therapist he worked with was part of the training. And, you know, I, I came home from the training. I was like, hey, you're doing this. This is it. He's shaking his head. No. Oh, oh it, yeah. it, 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 it took me. A little bit to convince him, um, but you know he he needed it. And then shortly thereafter, we got trained with EMDR. And and once again, you know the 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 army is very very smart. Um, they they hire the best consultants, and they get us the the world's best training. So, you know, oftentimes we we do have therapists who are very, very highly trained, which which was one of the huge benefits of being military for me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, both me and his therapist and, and other therapists at Schofield, we got trained in both modalities. So he started off with prolonged exposure and then when when that kind of peaked and when he got all the skills he could from that, then they switched over to EMDR, um, 
which was perfect. Now, normally, we see progress within 12 to 15 sessions. Well, you know, my, my of honey... EMDR or prolonged exposure or both? Either one. Mm-hmm. So, so either one. So, so usually with weekly sessions, within about four to five months, we're seeing a really, really big decrease in symptoms. Now, with my honey, he had multiple different events from multiple different time periods. So, um, you know, we we talk about simple trauma versus complex trauma, and and, and neither one of them is simple. But a simple trauma is I was raped one time complex trauma is i've had i've been sexually traumatized and victimized for you know 10 years there's a lot more events there's a lot more triggers um and and it could be i lived with a volatile dad who i never knew what was going to come through the door oh absolutely well and and when we look at trauma um the the scariest and the hardest to work with is are are those inconsistencies, right? So if if we know we're going to go into this environment and there's a higher likelihood, it's a little bit easier versus if there's inconsistency to it. So when when we look at childhood abuse, somebody who is always physically aggressive after they drank the kid can realize okay as soon as alcohol hits i know physical aggression is going to come versus every once in a while when they're physically aggressive but sometimes they're super sweet and sometimes super nice and it can cycle in and out that causes even more anxiety and i i would imagine self-hatred because once again it's easier to blame yourself than to say I don't know. Sure. sure. I don't know. Absolutely. Wh- where danger is. Absolutely. Well, and, and how many kids blame themselves? I must be at fault. This must have been me. How many um, rape survivors blame themselves? What did I do? I Why did I drink that much? Shouldn't have, shouldn't have gone there. Right. Should this have said is no my harder. Fault. Right. Right. Absolutely, absolutely. And that, and, and instead of saying that person shouldn't have done that. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, one hundred percent. You know, with with Mark, Mark's right. The you know we were really, really blessed in that we found a therapist that really worked with Mark, and every Wednesday he went to therapy, and we did it for about a year and a half. It it took a lot longer for those symptoms to really decrease and diminish. Now, prior to this, what, what, what Mark didn't say was, um, prior to meeting me, he had actually tried to go to a psychiatrist a couple different times, um, but the psychiatrist was such a bad fit. It was such a bad experience. So many of them are terrible at talk. Um, uh, talk therapy. Well, and, and honestly, like he sat on the computer and he typed up his notes the whole time and he didn't listen to Mark whatsoever. So I, I, as soon as I suggested to him, you know, we need to get you in with a therapist and we need to really look at possible medication, Mark was, was out. Like, uh-uh. <laughs> I am not doing that again. I've tried it before. I'm like, no, no, no. I... 
I will find you somebody who I know is good. Well, and, and oftentimes, just like what you said, it's really finding the right fit. It's finding that person who you really connect with, who you're able to really let your guard down and who you're able to trust will journey with you and will get you through this deep, dark, black hole. And, and, and I'm a believer in having both a psychiatrist and a therapist, you know, especially if, if meds are Absolutely. required. And I kind of feel like a just only having a psychiatrist that also does the thought, talk therapy is, is like having, you know, uh, something that's a combination oven car. Yeah. It's like, no, it's, you need an oven and it's great to have a car, but get them. Get them yes. separate. That's, yes. that's so true. Yes. You, know, you can cook eggs on the engine block, but <laughs> they're not going to be that good. It'll <laughs> yeah. taste so good. Yeah. Well, and it, it, it really is two separate skills. You know, the, the one is really doing therapy with you where, where they're really going into your, your deep, dark, black holes with you. As a therapist, I journey with my patients. And I know their strengths. I know their weaknesses. I know their fears. I know their their deep, darkest, blackest secrets. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I help them through that. I help them climb through and climb up and climb around. I help them become more resilient. I help them with coping skills. I help them fight their inner demons. Mm. The psychiatrist is really looking at those specific symptoms, how depressed they are, how anxious they are, what their sleep looks like, and is really looking at it from a medical perspective and is really tightering those medications and is really seeing what medications are really going to have the most effect versus really kind of journeying with them, really looking at those, um, really looking at the full story instead of just looking at the symptoms. So, you know, really oftentimes it takes two really dedicated people. Um, It takes one person who's journeying, and it takes one person who's more a wizard with medication. Mm -hmm. I I completely agree. That's, That's been my experience. So let's go back to um you're you're doing this thing weekly right it's torture i imagine bringing that back up uh the last thing somebody with all of that wants to do absolutely is bring that back up and talk in detail about it oh absolutely it's a ptsd is a disease of avoidance you know people walk around and they're always trying to hide how many times have you heard somebody say oh my grandfather was in the war but he doesn't talk much about it i wonder why you know, it's something that you're trying to avoid. It's a painful. It's 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 um, it's altering. So people don't like that. So to try to get somebody into therapy, where they're going to have to open up to do that sort of thing, and then they come across somebody who is not a good match, or someone who does that have zero credibility in terms of uh, experience or what have you. And uh, that's all you need. Uh, any kind of little excuse, you're looking for it, you know. And so that's what was really hard for me. I'm trying to find excuses to get out of this thing because I didn't want. But at the same time, I wanted to be better for her. I wanted to be okay. I wanted to be um, healthy since I was in a, in a, in a relationship. And uh, you know, I wanted to. You know, I wanted to be good for you. 
And uh, so I stuck it out. And, uh, you know, the small victories, you know. Small victories, um, I think one of the, 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 the most noticeable one was St. Patty's Day in Honolulu, which, by the way, it's in Chinatown. Um, all the Irish bars are in Chinatown and, and, and Honolulu. It's, it's pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> so they block off the whole, cordon off the whole area, and they, you know, it's green as far as the eye can see. And, um, and we're standing there. There's this big crowd of folks, and everybody's, and I'm standing there with my wife, and I'm smiling, and, and she goes, hey, you're not freaking out. I go, yeah, I know. That was a big victory because before, my anxiety would never allow me to be in these tight quarters. People just crowding in on me. I'm like, oh, God, I feel terrible. So I have to kind of, you know, you know, get out of that and move off to the side or get find some clear spots where I can, oh, not too many people. Don't ask me why. It's, and But this time it was small victories. And that was the first time I actually noticed that there was something, uh, there was change in the air, which is good. It's, it's very, very hopeful. Um, but... In order to get well, I think that you have to put down your guard. You have to um, be vulnerable. And uh, through vulnerability uh, comes healing. And um, that's, that was my journey. Well, and you, you got to know that, you know, it's, it's continuous. Um, I, I have people who ask me all the time, you know, when, when is this going to end? I'm like, there, there's no cure for PTSD. So we're going to do really intense treatment together. I'm going to get you through this. I'm going to get you feeling better. I'm going to get you coping better. And you're going to be able to do those things in life that you want to do. However... You have to know that there are different time periods in which you're really going to struggle. And hopefully you're going to come back either to me or, or to somebody like me. And you're going to get a couple tune-ups. And it's totally okay. That's going to be part of your life. Um, it's, you about know, being, it's about managing it, like most mood disorders or oh, it, it, it totally addictions. Is. Or, yeah. it, it totally is. You know, you, you have to know that, that there are going to be some really good years and there are going to be a couple rough waters. Mm. And it's okay. You're going to be able to recognize those rough waters and then you're going to be able to steer back to those things that work. You know, you you can't think of of yourself ever as cured because whatever happened happened. There, there's no magic wand. So you know, even even with us, I mean, you know, this year um, has been a really rough year for us. I got out of the military. I went into private practice, which has been wonderful, but it it's been a lot more stressful, right? Um, we moved. We have a little guy. He's two right now. And so that's definitely been a journey in itself. We just had a book that we published. Oh, yeah. I want to mention that, too. It's called uh, Just Want to See Trees, A Journey Through PTSD. Yeah. And uh, it's it's by Mark. And uh, we'll put a link to that on the uh, on the website. And, you know, with the book, it, it really went into Mark's story. So, you know, beforehand, everybody knew or uh, most people around us knew what it, what Mark had gone through. You know, both me and Mark have been very open 
Um, but now with a book, a lot of strangers know his story and know that he was suicidal and what he really went through. And so, you know, he's had to be a lot more vulnerable. He's told his story a lot more times. And so with that, you know, this year has been a lot more turbulent. And so, you know, we've had to, you know, really kind of look at those factors again. We've restarted some therapy. You know, we've gotten him the help and support he needs. So, you know, know that if if you've gotten to a really good place, you know, really enjoy that. But also know that if you slip back a little bit, it's okay. You can get back up. You just need to find those safe spaces again. You know, find those therapists that really specialize. Reach out within your community. There's a huge veterans population no matter where you're at. You know, there's Facebook groups. There, there's all these different resources. And, you know, really use those resources. Figure out what works for you. Um, whether or not it's a PTSD dog, whether or not it's therapy, whether or not it's a psychiatrist, and and really, you know, figure out how to get that help you need. Well, I want to thank you guys for coming and, and sharing your story and um, uh, helping enlighten myself and enlighten me, myself, doing some enlightening. <laughs> And uh, learn yourself something there. <laughs> but thank you for being so open and honest and uh, and vulnerable and uh, and uh, serving our country. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. Really, really enjoyed uh, talking to them. And I and I. Um, it's hard to put into words. Um, the the feeling of being in a room when somebody is expressing something so deeply personal to them and you see their eyes welling up and you see their partner, you know, rubbing their shoulder. And um, it's such a, I know this sounds cheesy, but it's such a privilege to have people just open their souls up like that um, for you. And uh, I know you get to hear it, but getting to hear it and see it is, um, is pretty cool. Pretty cool too. I feel uh, feel really honored. Um, let me ask you a question: Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? I almost wanted to read that like like a diabolical mad scientist. Are you hiring? Do you know where to find your job? Post your job to find the best candidates. Just ruined my bit. Well, with ZipRecruiter, you could post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then, ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you, it finds them. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners, you guys can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. 
Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash mental. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash mental. One more time to try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash mental. Every day is about making tomorrow better. Become a public health advocate to transform communal health in a holistic, evidence-based way with a graduate degree from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Graduate public, graduate, graduate public health programs are designed to prepare you for a career in solving some of the most complex challenges facing society. And Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health has been ranked the number one school of public health since 1994 by U.S. News and World Report. With 20-plus graduate programs for recent graduates or working professionals, it is the oldest and largest school of public health. And with more than 300 global research projects, you can go just about anywhere to study a variety of topics, from the school's backyard in Baltimore to the shores of Bangladesh, from eradicating smallpox to uncovering clues to combat Lyme disease. Learn how the Bloomberg School can help you make the greatest possible impact on the public's health. Uh, So, to learn about graduate studies at the number one school of public health at jhsph.edu slash feelgood. That's jhsph.edu slash feelgood. Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, protecting health, saving lives, millions at a time. And we will put the uh, the link to that under the show notes for uh, for the podcast. Let us get to some surveys. This is a happy moment filled out by Never in the Middle. And uh, she writes, In March, I broke up with my boyfriend, who I had been with for a year. It triggered the worst depressive episode I have experienced, but also made me, for the first time, seek help voluntarily. I started taking medication, and it had effect right away. I've been struggling with depression since the age of 11. I'm now almost 18. And for the first time, I felt like I could experience my true personality. Then, one day on the bus ride home from school, I googled emotional abuse warning signs and realized the actual extent of my ex-boyfriend's manipulation. It was like a fast-forward version of the relationship played through my head, and I felt the pain of every single memory all at once. I broke down in tears while the words repeated in my head, it was emotional abuse. I was emotionally abused for a year. The depression came back and it feels like the monster just keeps catching up with me and I'll never get rid of it. And I probably won't, but I know I'll learn to live with it. And every time it catches up with me, I'll be better at getting rid of it. I'm right now sitting in a classroom on my own working on a sculpture. I listened to episode 334 where at the end you read a letter, uh, a listener wrote to themselves. A few seconds in, I started crying and was nodding my head to the words, like saying okay to a friend telling me I'm strong. Even though I don't feel happy, I feel calm. I know that this will pass and I know I will feel happy again. I, first of all, you have such emotional insight uh, at the ripe age of, uh, 18. And um, I think that's that's so fantastic because you, like we were talking about earlier, you have a uh, reasonable expectation of what managing mental health care looks like. And I, for the longest time, 
exacerbated my depression because I kept telling myself I should be feeling better instead of meeting myself where I'm at, which sounds like it could be dirty. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Israeli Bombshell. And about PTSD, she writes, like everyone around you uh, is so infuriatingly complacent and you are the only one who sees how dangerous the situation is. Thank you for that. Uh, they want more episodes uh, about issues with overeating. I think we probably have about a half dozen, if not more. Um, uh, if you Google uh, binge or binging on our the search box on our website, you'll probably come up with uh, that. Or eating disorder. Um, um, also, um, although I don't know if bulimia, you'd be interested in bulimia because that's technically not... Um, the same as purely overeating, uh, whatever. I'm, I'm tired of uh, worrying that I might not be perfect in what I'm saying. <laughs> and somebody's going to be upset and write me an email. You are enough, Paul. You are enough. That's, that's the nice voice in my head that rarely, rarely makes an appearance. Maybe because it, maybe it's there all the time, but because it doesn't speak up, I never hear it. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Nothing Clever. And she writes, Lately, I've been feeling so overwhelmed, I've nearly shut down completely. Between the jarring jump straight from summer to short, cold, rainy days in Northeast Ohio, to the lunacy of our current political climate, to the minutia of everyday life, it feels like all I can do uh, is to keep trudging. Uh, it feels like all I can do to keep trudging, though. I haven't done any self-work. I can hardly maintain adequate hygiene. I am just trying not to drown. I was sitting at my desk doing some monotonous task, listening to one of my particularly insufferable co-workers lament how much more difficult her job is than anyone else's when I excused myself to take my dog for a walk, hoping to find some reprieve. My company allows me to bring my very calm, very sweet greyhound to the office. Oh my God, I fucking love greyhounds. They have maybe the most kissable head of any dog and they're so chill you wouldn't expect that you'd think they'd be uh yeah they're total couch potatoes uh we walked behind our building through some brush to a small field nestled between an office building and a warehouse and as we trotted along i looked at my big goofy dog sniffing deer poop and pine cones happy as can be his big brown eyes are so kind and sweet he bounces around without a care in the world because he knows I love him and everything will be okay. I noticed that the sun was out. It smelled like fall and I was suddenly filled with such sincere gratitude. It was almost overwhelming. My whole body relaxed and for the first time in so long, I really knew it would be just fine. It was so odd but so pleasing that back behind the oppressive bleak industrial park where I spend 50 hours of my week in a windowless office, I was reminded that things are really pretty wonderful if I can take the time to notice it every once in a while. That preach, preach. It is so much. You know, for, happy, for me, happiness is hit or miss, but peace is doable. Peace is, is a reasonable thing to attain, and there are so many tools for finding peace in this crazy mixed-up world of ours. And I love that you just demonstrated one. And then by me 
doing that voice, I robbed everyone of a little bit of peace. So it balanced out. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by uh, Yuki. And she is uh, in her 20s, uh, identifies as pansexual, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse, uh, yes, and I reported it. At 13, I was assaulted, making it my first sexual experience. At 17, I was raped. I have developed PTSD from these experiences. The majority of my life, I feel numb, hollow, and empty. I am without body. I do not know who I am as a person in this world. Uh, she's been emotionally abused. I dated an extremely emotionally abusive man. After nine months, I asked myself why I had dated a person who was so abusive and terrible to me, because I believe that is what I deserved. Because instead of having to focus and work on myself at the time I was getting sober, I could put all my energy into taking care of him. Any positive experiences? When I was emotionally abused by my boyfriend, we had many fun times together because there were good times. Uh, it made it extremely confusing and invalidating to the emotional and psychological abuse. Darkest thoughts that I want to harm others. I used to think about putting my cigarette out in my roommate's eye every time I smoked around him. Darkest secrets. I am hypersexual as a result of sexual assaults. I actually do not like being touched or having sex. I am hypersexual as a way to prove to myself that I am, quote, over it, that I am fine now. Uh, sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I have fantasies about someone watching me during intercourse. I feel disgusting admitting that. Well, you shouldn't because there's nothing unusual uh, or immoral about that. Um, having that fantasy. Um, or in reality, if it's consenting adults. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would tell my boyfriend that I have smoked meth. I am too afraid what he might think of me if I told him the truth. You know, I think a partner that would judge you for having smoked meth, you know, versus actively abusing meth, um, that might warrant a closer examination of of that relationship if you do tell him and he reacts badly um that um that's just my opinion on that uh, what if anything do you wish for i wish for peace of mind have you shared these things with others no i have not because i am afraid how do you feel after writing these things down i feel numb still a little relieved mainly numb um is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? There is hope in each new day. Thank you for sharing that. And you know, one of the things that I wanted to share is um, people who've experienced sexual trauma, uh, as you know, and you wrote in the survey, um, react by either shutting down completely sexually or um, being hypersexual. And being hypersexual um, is, in addition to you know, giving us the illusion that what happened to us uh, didn't bother us or now we're in control or whatever reason, it has the quality of numbing us. And the side effects of that aren't realized until you unnumb. 
until you stop acting out. Because sex in and of itself is not bad. It's just when it's used as a coping mechanism to avoid problems or feelings. Um, The biggest gift that I got from going without acting out and feeling my feelings is I became much more sensitive to who I could trust and who I couldn't. And that allowed me to begin distancing myself from people or cutting people out of my life. And that was a big part in me starting to heal and love myself. So it, it, if you find that you're unable to stop um, acting out sexually, assuming that is something that you, you want to work on, I think you'd be surprised and how much healing can happen when you're not numb. Of course, it fucking sucks at first when you're not numb because you're feeling all the shit you've been running from, but it won't kill you. It won't kill you. Hang in there. This is an awful moment filled out by depressed and abused. Um, <laughs> I would love to see that, that be the name of a horse in a race. <laughs> Coming out of the turn, depressed and abused by two lengths. Oh, my God. That, if somebody knew how to do a horse racing announcer's voice, creating a fictitious audio of a horse race involving names of people who have filled out this survey would be like the greatest gift I could ever ask for. Um, right now somebody is depressed in bed going, oh my God, I'm going to do that. I could never do that. That's going to take so much work. Uh, this is her awful moment. My mother has dementia. I am angry with her for not stopping the sadistic sexual abuse by my father when I was a child. My father died 12 years ago. Before his death and her dementia, she believed me about the abuse when I was an adult and was supportive to me as an adult. Now that she has dementia, she has forgotten about that. So when I talk with her, she rambles about how my dad was such a real man who was good at sex. Oh, I can't imagine how icky that must be. Uh, how he was a wonderful husband and father, how they never argued, even though they did. You know what I say to her when she rambles like this? I say, I know, Mom. Dad was a great man, father and husband, and he is watching over you from heaven. He loves you, Mom, and protects you. And then I go home and cry and yet laugh at the same time because it's darkly humorous to me that I am protecting my mother now when she didn't protect me then. It's oddly ironic that now, as her caregiver... I'm a better mother to her than she ever was to me. The dementia made her into a small child, and I love her more than she ever loved me. And I'm okay with this because I want to be a better person than she was. I assume that you mean not to compare yourself, you know, like I want to win. Um, that That is just, man, what a, what a soul uh, you have to to do that because it sounds like you're not doing this from a place of guilt you're doing this from like a place of healthy healthy loving and yeah it takes its its toll uh on you but um you clearly seem to be somebody that has done some type of 
deep work on yourself to be able to have the energy to give without resentment to um, to your mother. That's uh, you. You sound like a really spiritual person. Um, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by uh, Perfectly Cromulent. And I don't know what Cromulent was. I think we've done another survey uh, with that name. Maybe it was another one of yours. Maybe I've read this one before. I don't think I've read this one before. Um, God, I'm going to be so embarrassed if I read this one before. Um, that's a fear I have. Is that uh, all the weed I smoked as a... teenager and as an adult has just completely fucked up my memory and I'm going to become one of those people where you know he starts telling his story and people are whispering oh god he's telling that fucking story again well I've no I, I know I've done it on the podcast but uh okay she's straight in her 20s raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment uh, you ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I reported it. And also some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, the incident I reported happened when I was 17. I was date raped. I had met the guy online, and I was so starved for affection that I agreed to meet up with him. He lived about an hour away. His mom came and picked me up, then drove us to the liquor store before bringing us back to her house. We drank and smoked weed, and then he took me up to his bedroom. He started kissing me and trying to take my clothes off. I said no several times, but he kept going, and I was too drunk slash high to fight him off. He raped me without using a condom and ejaculated inside me. Luckily, I was on the pill. Since my parents didn't know where I was and I was too scared to call them, I stayed there overnight and acted like everything was fine because I didn't want to cause a scene. In the parentheses, how fucked up is that? Uh, letting the guy who just raped you cuddle you and tell you how beautiful you are is something I'll never forget. When I woke up in the morning, the first thing I did was take a shower because I wanted to get his, his stink off me. Then his mom drove me home. When I told my friends what happened, they insisted I go to the police. My friends meant well, but that was a bad idea. I had to recount the story a dozen more times in disgusting detail to both hospital staff and police, and I had to have an, an invasive rape kit performed. When I finally met with a detective, he asked me things like, why did you stay the night? And why did you take a shower? Didn't you want to preserve evidence? I realized he was just testing me to see how well I'd hold up on the witness stand. The answer was, not well. I broke down, told him my friends were the ones who made me go to the cops, and I left. I don't think anything ever happened to my rapist or his mom for supplying underage kids with alcohol and marijuana. I don't even remember his name now. The stuff that happened that was probably, the stuff that happened that was probably sexual abuse, but I'm still not 100% sure about because the realization is pretty fresh, is the way my mom treated me growing up. She was always very touchy-feely, would walk around naked, never close the door when she was in the bathroom, and tell me it was okay if she saw me naked because she'd seen it all before. She would make me shower with her, and she'd always take too long rinsing out the conditioner from my hair. She breastfed me until I was five or six, and I have vivid memories of it. My sister and I slept in the same bed with her when we were young, and she would sleep naked, even with us in the bed. She would kiss me on the lips, and I once tried to French kiss her because I wanted to know what it felt like, and I thought it would be okay. When she taught my sister about 
my sister and I about getting our periods. She made us take a tampon out of her and put a fresh pad into her underwear uh, that she was wearing. I think my sister was even more messed up by it than I was because my sister would start masturbating in front of me sometimes and I would have to leave the room. I honestly hadn't considered any of this abuse until I heard your story on the Risk podcast about your relationship with your own mom. I was actually driving to therapy while listening to it, and I broke down in the car as I connected the dots. Luckily, my therapist specializes in trauma and is certified in EMDR. First of all, I want to say how sorry I am at how you have been failed so consistently at every step um, along the way. And... Um, and I want to high five you for, um, getting into therapy and finding someone who specializes in trauma and EMDR. And the other thing I want to say is, um, if you hear me reading this and you haven't contacted me already, um, I am gathering, um, uh, people's stories, um, uh, because I want to write a book about this phenomenon that doesn't get talked about with, um, with mothers. Uh, because what you just described is um, probably the exact description of about 80% of the people um, whose stories I've heard that had mothers uh, like that. Um, and it is a real thing, and that is absolutely sexual abuse. Um She's been emotionally abused. My mother was and is emotionally suffocating. My dad is a workaholic and my sister has chronic health problems, so my mom turned to me for emotional support. I believe she is the main cause of my crippling anxiety and depression. Lessening contact with her has been extremely difficult for me because she acts like a victim and it fills me with guilt. I can't really talk to my friends about it because they all love my mom. Everybody does. Boy, you just described my... uh my experiences with my mom and um, that last part. Uh, my mom didn't, from what I remember, didn't walk around the, the house naked, but I never felt safe being in the bathroom. And there was a lot of other stuff that I've talked ad nauseum uh, on the podcast about. Um, and um, there's a book called Silently Seduced that really blew my mind and really helped me uh, cement the reality that this is an actual thing and these are patterns and that this isn't about vilifying your mom or making her suffer. This is about you giving weight to what happened to you so you can stop suffering and so that you can, you can heal. Um, uh, I've had many positive memories with my mom and she can be a very sweet and supportive person when she wants to be. This makes the guilt of separating from her even worse. Uh, last summer when my LTR was failing, I started spending more time with her. We bought bikes and took day trips to the different bike trails around the city. It was a lot of fun for the most part. Looking back, I realized we were both using each other as replacements for our emotionally absent significant others. I got out of the dysfunctional relationship I was in, but she's still married to my dad and always will be. Darkest thoughts. I think about overdosing on my antidepressants or driving into oncoming traffic pretty regularly. I also fan... Please, if you're going to, use your turn signal. Um, <laughs> I also fantasize about running away to some secluded place where I could live by myself like a hermit. My God, I have fantasized about that too. I realize the, these aren't incredibly salacious thoughts, but they're just as difficult to share with the people in your life. 
man, if you found a support group, and I can suggest a few if you contact me, um, they would get you a hundred percent. Darkest Secrets, I don't know if I'll ever tell anyone in my life about the things my mom did to me apart from my therapist. The experience of telling people about my rape when I was 17 left a pretty bad taste in my mouth. I don't think our society has the emotional capacity to properly deal with victims of sexual abuse. I think a small portion of our society has that capacity, um, but God knows we need a bigger portion because uh, there's a lot of people really hurting, um, really confused. Uh Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I was in a short relationship with a fat fetishist and feeder. He would take me to Benihana as foreplay. He loved hearing about all the food I'd eaten on a given day. I'd send him pictures of my lunch and it would make him hard. I thought his fetish was strange at first, but it surprised me how quickly I got into it. All my life I'd hated my extra fat, and here was a guy who loved every pound. I was extremely, it was extremely freeing and some of the absolute best sex I've ever had. It hurt a lot when I had to end things with him for unrelated reasons. I often wonder if I'll be able to find someone else I feel as sexually open with. Sharing this makes me wonder if I should go sign up for one of those BBW sites, uh, dating sites, even though I'm just a, quote, small fat, a.k.a. too fat to be normal, too thin to be plus size. Can't fit in anywhere, I guess. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my parents, and specifically my mom, how much they fucked me up, but it would crush them. I'd like to tell my ex from my LTR that he's a manipulative, narcissistic monster, but we still own our townhouse together, townhouse together, so I'll have to play nice until I can get my name off the deed and mortgage. I'd like to tell one of my best friends from childhood that she's actually a really, really bad friend, but I just don't know what it would do apart from make her sad. Well, you know, I was thinking when I read this is, um, you, you know, telling your mom how much she fucked you up would, um, you don't have to go that far and beginning to express what you want to express to your mom. It could just be, I need space, you know, and uh, just take little baby steps. But I'm sure your, your therapist is working on this stuff with you, so I'm going to shut my mouth. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to someday be emotionally stable enough to take care of my daily needs without having a mental breakdown every six months and without significantly relying on another person for my own happiness. That is my greatest dream. Well, I can tell you it is doable, but I think for most of us, it involves making the painful um, boundary setting or cutting of ties with people in our life, our lives, um, and walking through the guilt and the questioning and et cetera, et cetera. But you're worth it. You are worth it. Um how do you feel after writing these things down? A little vulnerable, like an open bottle of Coke waiting for a bee to fly into it. <laughs> but maybe there won't be a bee. Ah, uh, thank you. Thank you for that. That also helped me feel uh, less alone. Uh, I shared in my support group meeting last night something that I just felt like uh, I wanted to take back. It just felt like I... I just felt kind of um, 
nobody judged me outwardly, but in my head, everybody was judging me. And it just made me regret what I had shared. Um, and I'm sure it's just the mean voice in my brain. And it almost never happens in my uh, support group meetings. But I was really uncomfortable. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by uh, Heidi. And um, she writes, where is it? Actually, I'm going to do I'm going to do this one uh, another week. I want to end with this one. Um, this is uh, an awful moment uh, filled out by perhaps a warm espresso will help soothe my mania. And uh, she writes, one of the quote side effects of my bipolar disorder is that my taste in music changes drastically between episodes. I'm talking a switch from the most 2000s era Linkin Park level emo music imaginable coupled with the bluesiest of blues during periods of depression to the most obnoxious varieties of club music, Japanese pop, Skrillex, like dubstep, electronica, house beats, or whatever the heck it's called while I am manic. So recently, my 80-year-old great-grandmother got married to a longtime boyfriend, and my mom and stepsisters decide to throw her a party in celebration, kind of like a bachelorette party, but for an octogenarian. The idea was that all my female relatives uh, would attend. My childhood was, in a word, shitty, marked by physical and emotional abuse and neglect, and yeah, I generally try to stay as far away from my parents as possible, and I'm not the only one. Lots of my relatives, though not all, decided to avoid the thing altogether and throw their own later party because my mother is a raging narcissist, and this was undoubtedly just an opportunity for her to show off. My great-grandmother, however, graciously agreed to attend and asked me personally to attend as well so we could sort of join forces against the inevitable dramatic outbreaks. You just can't say no to such a sweet granny, so I agreed. Sure enough, the party was miserable. It didn't take long for the passive-aggressive insults to start flying. One unexpected element of the party, though, was some rather perky-sounding music that someone had graciously supplied for the festivities. The music started off relatively tame, although upbeat, but quickly began to escalate to more and more bassy-sounding beats. As the music changed once again, this time to an actual friggin' anime opening. I'd had enough. I was depressed at the time, and it seemed so incredibly rude to Granny what was occurring between my relatives, and now there was this completely inappropriate music to top it off. I thought, damn, whoever the fuck is responsible for this mix has got to have a seriously messed up mind. They've got to be the most crazy-ass bastard here. It took me a moment to notice the angry and disapproving stares pointed my way. At first... I thought they were frustrated with my sour expression and general desire to be anywhere else. That's when I remembered repeatedly begging my great-grandmother to allow me to make a playlist for the party earlier in the year during a manic episode. I was mortified, and people were pissed. Everyone, that is, except for my unendingly precious granny, in the midst of of the struggle to unhook the vintage cassette player from the tangle of cords necessary to get it to work, she looked at me and said, Ladybug, you just made my fucking week. Now that is how you hold your own against your mother.
Love, I have never been so incredibly proud of you. That was like a little movie. Thank you so much for that. Thank you guys for uh, for all your surveys. And, um, and um, just never forget that you're not alone. And um, there are so many people that feel like you do. You know, the details of their circumstances might be different, but um, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.